This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And if Lisa's thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive. Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today we're back for the fourth installment of the Grotto of Truth Q&A. Yes, Q&A 4, here we are. It's been another productive January month. January 31st, yep. 2021. These are the first batch of questions from our, our new year. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, a pretty good... We got a pretty good baker's dozen this time from the Grotto. Oh, yeah, we do. Twelve, yeah. Somehow I felt like there were fewer this time, but I guess there aren't. Uh, and there's even we, an 11A and 11B, so mm-hmm. uh, we'll see. Yeah. But but very... Uh, very yeah. We got some substantive uh, questions here, and uh, I, think, uh, I think we can make good time. But uh, once again, I guess we would like to thank the grotto for their uh contributions for their energy for their spicy takes uh just it's been it's been a good month uh you know there's been a lot of crazy stuff going on in january 2021 and uh the grotto felt like you know i mean i guess by definition a grotto would give you kind of shelter from any kind of storm that was coming Mm mm-hmm yeah um yes. and yes. you know uh, <laughs> there uh yeah. there was there was some kind of storm that came uh in January and now uh we're yes. sitting in the middle of the great uh the great uh short squeeze revolt of 2021 the, the yeah true right the GameStop thing uh i guess this may, maybe this is the 10 days of darkness that uh Q predicted because like all the base hedge fund capitalists um you know are in trouble and that's like you know anti-patriotism like you know like what what if general flynn and his family have like some assets that are in danger because of of this although you know uh like i feel like gamestop is owned by like the you know some of like the biggest asset holders like in america or or something like it it can't uh, not be especially now at this point like i mean just as for anybody that didn't get in on the on the short selling you know, uh, why wouldn't they buy GameStop or AMC or Build-A-Bear or Nokia right now? Um, yeah. Or Dogecoin, um, for that matter. 
Um, <laughs> right, everybody, yeah. uh, um, everybody, I think everybody made a little money off Dogecoin uh, this last week. We'll see if it sticks. Uh, but. Yeah, those are holding. Not me, because my Dogecoin wallet is like the one thing that I didn't back up, uh, <laughs> like of my entire like history for the past like uh, ten years. So uh-huh. that's the one thing I lost. Like, uh, don't even make me think about it. <laughs> yeah, I, you're right. Uh, you're right. Uh, yeah, maybe I did be... usury just to get, uh, you know, I did usury just to get some Doges, just for you know, uh, just for the meme. And I can't even make bank off of it. When I checked on Tuesday, the value of my wallet, or not on Tuesday, on uh, on, on Friday or Saturday, the value of my wallet, it was it was brutal. Uh, <laughs> I mean, not as bad as as a friend of ours who's currently struggling to sync up his wallet uh, over like yeah for the last ten years or something. Uh, yeah, with six hundred thousand Doge uh, sequestered inside yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah uh, best of luck to USD him. And Doge. Uh, yeah, well, probably like, honestly, yeah, well, no, no, six hundred thousand Doge, yeah, six hundred thousand USD. It, yeah. I think on yeah. Tuesday it was worth about forty thousand dollars. It's probably yeah, worth it's about dropping. ten thousand yeah, now, but still, sinks, I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's for the best. Uh, I don't know. Sinks, but yeah. Anyways, yes. um, um, anyways, uh, so I guess you know we well let let's get in i'm sure next month we'll have some questions about all that stuff uh but let's uh let's 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 dive in let's dive into uh to our queries here and uh yes let's let's see what we can do Um, all right um do you do you want to read uh number one sure yeah uh, this uh, bad back Jack asks, uh, which SJ episode is it that you guys go into Jose Delgado? I've wanted to give it a re-listen ever since I heard it. Around the first time I heard about Mae Brussel, I also found out about Delgado. What really blew me away was that Alan Moore had used Delgado as a model for the main villain of, in my opinion, his best work, Miracle Man, truly the first, quote, deconstruction of the comic book, comic book out there which uh, I had read quite a few years earlier. Leans heavily into uh, the inspirations of Superman's original authors and Nietzsche fanboys, Siegel and Schuster. So, yeah, I would definitely love to hear that Delgado bit again. Thanks. Uh, well, I don't know if we can reproduce it fully again, but you can hear it I, on our Target is Your Brain episode. Uh, yeah, I want to say that was number uh, 19. Number was that? Number 19. Wow, we've really done a lot. Uh, I know. <laughs> yeah. Know, uh, feels like, like, yeah, 19, Target is Your Brain. Soviet perceptions of American mass media. Um, yes. Yeah, there was uh, a there there was a segment in the Target is Your yeah. Brain documentary. So if anybody, I guess uh, uh, that that was one of our uh, Awara frequency uh, Patreon episodes. Uh, if you go check Soviet that out, fears of psycho imperialism. Yes, the uh, final subtitle that we gave it. Uh huh. And uh, so that they did a whole segment in this 1984 soviet tv documentary about uh the two mk ultra scientists in america uh dr john gittinger and jose delgado and uh they they give some they give a good overview jose delgado is probably most well known for implanting electrode transmitters in yeah Yeah. particularly a bull Mm -hmm. that was his big right um, yes he was a brave matador yeah he was bragging because he uh you know achieved the the mastery of of a matador by like uh electroshocking the bull into submission yeah i remember uh we read some secondary uh, literature on on delgado i think in that episode too Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he uh, was uh, controversial. You know, uh, he, yes. he. It was weird how like some of the articles that we read 
definitely sort of praised him and credited like his mm. uh, research or saw him as like a sort of maverick genius in some way but yeah there was like a, maybe it was like sadistic and bizarre yeah it was and like maybe like a scientific was, like to control humans brains yeah mm-hmm. like uh the, yeah. the target quite um, literally was your brain with jose delgado yeah for sure you know the and was the brain for sure and it's a I very interesting something uh, yeah, I remember him saying some kind of remark like, uh, you know, to say that like, oh, you know, you can't invade my brain. Like, who cares? You know, like uh, <laughs> people are so precious about like putting electrodes in your brain. Like, uh, oh, you know, uh, they just don't understand. Uh, but he doesn't listen to the episode to, um, yeah, like, to find the exact quote, which I'm certain that we read. But it yeah, definitely this, uh, has some chilling yeah. resonances with Elon Musk's Neuralink uh, stuff today, and. Uh, and yeah, I think I think even those articles we found maybe it was from like Scientific American or something. It was like in the last five years, and they were kind of trying to do a a little bit of like a liberal cleanup of this guy. Even though I think it, it kind of varied. There were some articles that were more critical of him because, of course, he was from Spain, and I think he moved back to Spain at some point uh, while Franco was still in power, and he had some kind of cozy relations with the fascist government there. So mm-hmm. eh, you know. Uh, it, 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 it all kind of syncs up in a spooky way with him. But yeah, if you listen to that episode, uh, we we dive into Delgado um, a, a decent amount. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this <clears throat> is interesting. Uh, even his wife was delighted to see an alpha male gibbon collapse when the underlings pushed the control lever. Do you remember how we thought of Franco, says his wife? Imagine being able to turn off the Generalissimo. Delgado responds, but who could have put the electrodes into the dictator? With electromagnetic radiation, we could have controlled the dictator from a distance. We did some experiments at Yale where we influenced the brain from up to 30 meters away. Uh, um, okay. Targeted individual much? Yeah. Uh, okay. Awesome. I know yeah, that he has come up in the... The first time I ever heard his name was when I was, like, researching, like, targeted individual stuff years ago. And that he's, like, a big boogeyman of that kind of milieu of people that are, you know, really into that or feel like they're being targeted. I'm like, sure, yeah. Cause you know, you could find his patents. Interesting. A lot of his academic research papers are only, you can only find them in Spanish cause he wrote them after he went back to Spain. I'm sure maybe they're translated somewhere, but it almost seems like a, it's a convenient roadblock to actually see more in detail what he was researching because it hasn't been publicly translated. This might be uh, the quote that we reference, or at least it's a similar sentiment. Uh, it's a 1972 article citing his views, which was presented at the MK Ultra hearings. Uh, we, uh, or I guess it, I don't know if the article is from 1972, but in at the hearings 1972, this article was was presented. Uh, we need a program of psychosurgery for political control of our society. The purpose is physical control of the mind. Everyone who deviates from the given norm can be surgically manipulated. The individual may think that the most important reality is his own existence, but this is his, only his personal point of view. This lacks historical perspective. Man does not have the right to develop his own mind. Uh, this wow. kind of liberal orientation has great appeal. We must electrically control the brain. Someday, armies and generals will be controlled by electric stimulation of the brain. Awesome. Who are uh, the brain police indeed? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, uh, great. Wow. Uh, cool. Yeah. Who has the right to uh, control their own mind? Uh, not you, according uh, to Jose no one Delgado. Does. Uh, that's, you know, uh, only your point of view, that you have the right to control your own mind. Um, uh, okay, it's, it's like a liberal cool orientation, guy. and we must electrically control the brain. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, All right. Yeah, extremely okay. cool. Extremely yeah, cool. Yeah, it's great. Um, okay. Yeah. 
Okay. <clears throat> so, um... Great. Yeah. Check out that episode if you want to hear more about that maniac, because we definitely uh, talked about him at, at some length, yes. Um, yeah. Okay, so, you know what, let's, uh, let's move on to number two. Uh, this is Word. a pretty... This, this is a pretty... Uh, <sighs> A pretty beefy question um but i guess this is from roy walker he asks if you're still taking questions yes we are what are your thoughts on the red kahina phil greaves phenomenon on twitter and molly klein's spooky family ties e.g her presidency of pko tv and its partnership with uh c-e-c-h-e which um i want to say was like uh I'm trying Do you remember what C E C H E is? I really am not like uh, all up on like the Molly Klein like info uh, or you know the Paul Klein info. I mean, some of it like I've read uh, and it's interesting, you know. Uh, yeah. But I feel like it's more of a hook for people who were more deeply into the Red Kahina Phil Greaves orbit, which I really was. I saw Phil Greaves the other day uh like like someone screen capped him uh uh like talking about uh how germ theory is all fake and uh you know uh he had some amazing uh quote uh i, I want to see if i if i can find that uh honestly but uh i don't know if that's sure uh, you can uh, i mean yeah, if if you want because uh, i'm okay now i'm i'm getting caught up to speed i got i got paul klein fan cam up on uh my browser what here you and yes it is the uh, uh it's a it was a cia front this it called the center for communications health and the environment that used health and environmental issues as a pretext for infiltration and regime change according to the account at paul kine yeah. fan cam and that was wall that was basically he was referring to uh when uh molly klein who's the real name of uh red at Red Kahina, very uh, uh, interesting, very notable, and kind of influential Twitter Marxist-Leninist, I, I guess would be, or Twitter communist, basically, uh, going back to the early uh, 2010s at least. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I'll, I'll back up in a second and explain to anybody maybe who's like not familiar because I've I've sort of uh you know I was I was mufos with both of these uh, accounts uh, at various points and now I have been blocked by both uh, so <laughs> I'm like cut off from their universe and uh, and I think I talked maybe in the last Q and A about uh, Phil Greaves and how I got blocked for uh, like saying that the uh, Syrian uh, Social Nationalist Party. Um, uh, the SSNP uh, was kind of sus, and that uh, partisan girl, that that influencer, uh, was like doing things with David Duke, and was doing like really. I think the the sort of red brown alliance thing gets like thrown about maybe a little bit too liberally, pun intended. But I think that in that case, there actually was a little bit of like, eh, I don't know, like maybe like don't totally like co-sign partisan girl because she's like hanging out with David Duke and talking about, you know, Zog right. and like all these other things. Like maybe she yeah. does seem to be doing like an insight role or kind of entryism into like left spaces. And maybe you want to be like, you don't want to get shit coded by that, et cetera. Um, and Phil Greaves, you know, is like, well, what you want, mate? Like, uh, you know, and just like really like went after <laughs> me. And then I think I, at one right. point Red Kahina like slid in and tried to like reason with me to like give up what I was saying. You just like stop like you don't 
understand what you're doing. Like you're giving aid to like the anti-Assad forces I by like posting this. this. Yeah, yeah, I mean, she was yeah. kind of trying to like position herself in between us, but then Phil Graves was like, "Sort off, mate," and then he blocked me. And um, but then <laughs> like, but then over the years, like there have been a few things with Red Kahina and uh, like. I mean, I can talk about why I got blocked from her. Uh, it had to do with Epstein and uh, a, a personal connection she had. Uh, anyways, uh, let me just... Okay, so the big thing that I think uh, are is referenced here in this question is Molly Klein's spooky family ties and her presidency of PKOTV. And PKOTV was the Paul Klein organization uh, or that was basically a, a, a production company for film and television because her father, um, and that is, that is basically, uh, her father was a very um, successful and influential media executive in New York in like the late 20th century. Now, this has kind of been known for years. Like I remember this kind of being brought up as early as like 2013 or 2014 because people would attack Red Kahina, who's known for her very, uh, kind of a passionate and colorful screeds against the sort yes. of creeping fascist menace and like you know needing to stand up for you know the the sort of the axis of resistance you know like Iran Hezbollah Assad uh, Venezuela etc and um, and so you know like I talked I think the last Q and A about the evolution of my thinking around the Syrian war mainly from following it on Twitter. And uh, seeing the takes that were coming out of this, like, Marxist Twitter at the time. And before it was really uh, – there was a real, like, pressure uh, to basically be on board with the kind of U.S. regime change narrative and agenda in Syria. And so, like, the Twitter Marxists, uh, like uh, Phil Greaves and uh, <clears throat> and Red Kahina and her partner uh, Cordelier um, – who is, uh, I think is actually, uh, still follows me, has not blocked me. Um, but, uh, if anybody's curious, like they, I think they live together. They're like a, you know, they're in a relationship. Um, you know, they were the first people that were really kind of like calling out some of the propaganda and were calling bullshit on, you know, things that were coming out and various influencers. And I remember like, I really did kind of like side with Red Kahina because she got into like this huge dust up with Molly Crabapple and people, I don't know if people like really know Molly Crabapple, but she's incredibly sus and she's one of these people. There's actually a number of them, but she was one of those prominent people that kind of became like a micro Twitter celebrity off of Occupy Wall Street. So she was like down right. in New York at Occupy Wall Street and she would like, you know, she would like draw like like paintings, like these kind of a, you know, a Harlequin kind of like stylish, like hipster suicide girl kind of like paintings yeah. of stuff. And then she started like writing journal. She started kind of like working as like a journalist for like Vice and uh, maybe a, cu a couple other like trendy application or, you know, trendy publications like that online. And then she was like very big in the kind of like sentimental propaganda campaign for Syria. Like she would always be like, you 
know, like I painted this portrait of like a five-year-old boy, like Ahmed, who is like in a camp. I'm not saying, you know, uh, people didn't suffer in this war or whatever, but it was always with this spin on it that like Assad came and like barrel bombed his village like 25 times in a row. And like they like announced on a loudspeaker, like we want to kill all you all because you're all scum. And like, uh, I'm a Nazi. Like, I want to kill you. Blah. And like, wow. Like, oh, okay. mm, it's just, like so deep. Uh, and you know, sure it was just. Kahina got very mad. Yeah, uh, yeah Red Kahina uh, really went off on her and was like, you're a fucking CIA spook. Like, you're a fucking, like, you're basically like Operation Mockingbird. Like, you're doing the work of the imperialists and NATO. Like, fuck you. And I remember, like, watching those fights. They were very kind of entertaining. And I was kind of happy that, because, like, there's other people that came out of Occupy, like Tim Pool is another good example. Same kind of thing. He was, like, a live streamer who, like, started out at Occupy. And now he's, like, this weird, like, centrist, yeah. like, crypto right-wing, like, contrarian uh, guy. I don't know if you can really say he's like crypto right wing like no he I don't is know. like it's one of those people who like pretends to be like you know i'm a liberal and i can't uh, even i can't handle it like you know that's yes. like grift but like every yeah. like it's an open secret like everyone knows like the only people who say is a liberal are like extreme right wing people when they have to like name a liberal who they respect like but yeah. even they really know that he's not like it's just like you know uh it's all a performance uh, yeah it is it is uh and and so it it was like Uh, nice to watch like people like red kahina like really go all out after that and then but then you know she's she's known for being like a a bit of a bulldog like you know if she gets on somebody's case that's like and so this is relevant to what we'll bring up momentarily uh with paul klein fan clam but like she very infamously i think you can still find the video online where she kind of like a uh, crash left forum, you know, the sort of like leftist, like uh, gathering uh, convention or whatever in New York in like 2014, where at the time, I mean, this is almost like pre like resurgence of DSA and shit like that. So it was a lot of like random, like activisty and kind of like media celebrity leftist kind of types like it was. Uh, but I think Slavoj Žižek was there. And Slava Zizek did like a Q&A. And for some reason, Red Kahina dressed up as like a um, in like this like strange like Mandarin costume is the best way I could describe yes. it. You remember this video? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and like was right. like dressed up as like Lao Tzu or something. Uh, yeah. Like, uh... Yeah. It was. And, and she was there with um with a uh, another account that was like very interesting and ended up being spooky uh of uh god what Terran Fivek yes and she was like right. very good friends with like um Emma Quangle yes i'm remembering now was her name and she would she was posting she was another account I actually like really liked back in like 2014 that like kind of turned me more on to like the the marxist wing of things and uh yeah is uh emma quangle she had like worked in iraq and had worked in like palestine for like the un and was and posted on a blog and like tweeted a lot uh about you know uh resistance against you know u.s imperialism and like really claimed like i'm a communist like fuck even like calling myself a socialist like i'm a communist and like and then like somebody doxed her and she like nuked her account but then she like popped up again and then she started like living with uh molly klein and they were like best friends but then they had a huge falling out 
and then right, I Molly. They were falling yeah, out. yes. Mm-hmm. It was wild, and like she, yeah. this girl Taryn Fibek was like dating that Adam Johnson guy from like the Citations uh, Needed podcast, who's been like a kind of you know lefty like journalist influencer guy. Uh, at the same time, like this is all very incestuous kind of world. Um, but then like they had a. Uh, Taryn Fivek and like Molly Klein had a falling out and then she started like for several years it was just all about how like Taryn Fivek was CIA and like infiltrated her life and like she was an op and like you shouldn't trust her but then like Taryn Fivek did join like a like in the workers world party like a kind of sus like moribund Trotskyist party and started doing a lot of like very um, like flashy kind of demonstrations and I, I do think like she, there's something sus going on there and, and some of the people she was like networking and, and cross promoting with but then you know so like Molly Klein it's like whenever you wanted to go and like get the hardest take on somebody that you know people thought were kind of sus like you could count on Red Gahina to like bring the flame and like uh, basically and she was <laughs> yeah. pretty she was pretty cordial I think with Phil Greaves, I think they had a falling out a couple years ago and like blocked each other. Like after Phil Greaves blocked me, uh, they had their own kind of like fight and uh, and all that stuff. And then I think, okay, so then that kind of brings us up to like this year where uh, like uh, Red Kiki and I still, you know, followed each other and and stuff. I didn't really interact with her anymore after a while. Um, And I never like DM'd with Red Kahina because other people did. Like, I remember, like, kind of when I got blocked by Phil Greaves, like, other people were saying, like, yeah, some more paranoid Marxist Twitter heads that, uh, that, uh, if they, you know, if they're listening, they know who they are, uh, kind of explained to me, like, Red Kahina is fucking sus. Like, don't trust her. She's got, like, toxic behavior and she basically, like, starts drama all the time. And, like, there's just something. There's something like off that like you should like separate yourself from because uh, whatever. And so I kind of like heeded that advice. I think it was good advice. And then this year comes around and like coronavirus hits. And then she was one of the first to like take a very hard stance against like this is a fucking op. Like all of this is a fucking op. And uh, and even back in like I think like March and like April of 2020. She was saying this is a fucking op like uh, and I think she had some very hot takes. Uh, I think one of the ones that point jumps out to me is posting like old uh, sketchings of like masks that um, that like African slaves would be forced to wear, you know, in like mm-hmm. in colonial yeah, America right. and basically yeah. comparing it to like ha- the mandate to wear a mask uh, like no. in New York. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yes, like, this very, is what yeah, they're doing boomer. to you. I mean, I guess she is, like, how old is Red Kahina? She's, like, 50 or something, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, like that, she's a Gen Xer. She's a Gen Xer. So, yeah. uh, that's definitely, uh, something that people are continuously, right. like, surprised that she's, like, older than, um, than that. Yes. But, mm-hmm. I, the, but, okay, so the, there was that, and a lot of people were, like, fighting with her, but, like, that, I didn't, I didn't fight with her over that, and that's not why I got blocked, because the, the reason I got blocked is because it came to my attention at a certain point that she is quite close recently that you got blocked then yes it was like mid 2020 yeah and i'll explain why because uh red kahina is like very close friends with this writer guy who's on twitter named john stepling and 
it's pretty much confirmed knowledge. It's it's this is not speculation at all or defamation that John Stepling is like a playwright and like a blogger and a kind of like a left wing dude and whatever. But uh, in his past, like when he was, I believe, 30 years old, he got uh, he was in a relationship with a 16 year old girl and got her pregnant and like had a baby with her when she was 16. And uh, you know, and Red Kahina is somebody who, like, I feel like on the one hand is always she has never shied away from like calling the ruling class a bunch of like sadistic pedophiles in general or whatever. Um, or like, you know, like she, as far as I knew, she never had any hesitation of like going there into like that kind of a Epstein, Epstein, Larry King to true scandal like territory. But suddenly when it came to like John Stepling, she didn't really uh she was sort of defending him and like defending him in like very kind of weird and messed up ways like if people would post uh things about like red kahina why are you friends with this fucking pedo um she would be like why are you so obsessed with like underage sexuality and like the sexual agency of a 16 year old why do you want to be their pimp you know like she would do stuff like that that was just like, whoa, like, what are you getting at here? And then she would post, like, other things about how, like, when she was a teenager growing up in, like, New York in, like, the 70s and the 80s that, you know, uh, she oh, had, yeah. like, relationships with older men. talking about age gap discourse and how yes. it's, like, fascist or something. You know? yes. Yeah, exactly. She was and saying like, it's yeah, like, to be concerned. Yeah, uh, yeah like, like mm-hmm. maybe uh, a teenager, why are you denying, like, a teenage girl the agency to have, like, a more, an older, like, more experienced lover? Like, why why do you think they, they like, must be forced to, like, copulate with, like, you know, selfish, like, immature, like, you know, boys their own age and, like, stuff like that? Just, like, really, like, whoa, okay, like, wow, okay, you're really, um you're really riding hard for this like theory yeah. and you know and john stepling for his credit uh, i think literally did a uh it's not pedophilia it's a phoebophilia in his own defense uh, <sighs> you uh, know and um and john stepling like he just he kind of pisses me off and he's a weirdo and uh and like i don't know i read his blog it's like he's like not that good of a writer but he i think he got like a uh, like a guggenheim fellowship or something like that to like go and like got to go to poland to like teach uh theater and things like that but he's just like a sus figure and i, I don't know why like red kahina is like so attached and like loyal to him but that kind of leads in so people were maybe like wondering like what is up with this like curious uh, approach to like sexuality that uh, Red Kahina, this line that she has, and it had been known for years that she came from a relatively well off background, and people had been able to figure out who her father was like years ago, uh, and that was Paul Klein, who uh, a lot of people love to like point out was the founder of, among many other things, Playboy TV, like one of the first like satellite pay per view porn channels and so people would often like attack her by being like oh okay like you you're a communist but like you're actually like a playboy tv heiress and whatever and you know she would say like oh you know i didn't even inherit that much money and like my dad died in like the 90s and like you know fuck you like uh that has no bearing on this and to be clear like just because your dad i guess founded playboy tv doesn't mean you can't be a marxist or like you can't be a socialist or communist or whatever like I, i i don't believe in like that like hard class determinism like angles dad owned a factory you know what i mean like 
it's it, it like Craig Castro's family wasn't like poor, you know what I mean? So uh, it's right. like, yeah, like class class traders are a thing. And but it's always like I just want to hear what it's kind of like Jim Morrison's dad starting the Vietnam War. Like, I just want to hear you speak on this maybe a little bit. <laughs> and like, uh, how do you view how does this affect you and how, how you look at the world instead of just like burying it? But anyways, like out of nowhere early this year comes a very interesting anonymous account. And I, I, to be honest, like, I really don't know, like, who's behind it. And it, it, it could be a number of people because Red Kahina has, like, pissed off a lot of people over the years. Um, oh, but anyways, uh, sorry. Before I get to Paul Klein fan cam, the reason I got blocked is because there was, like, another sketchy John Stepling thing that came out. And, um, <clears throat> oh, maybe somebody was... Somebody was talking about, because she had posted once, uh, somebody had asked, like, are there any nice billionaires that you've ever met or are they all like pieces of shit? And she said something that was kind of very revealing. She said, you know, one time in the 80s, I worked for Ronald Lauder and he was a very gracious and nice man. And that jumped that jumped the fuck out at me because uh, <clears throat> if you remember, Khalid, when uh, we were like prepping, uh, when we met in New York in 2019, and we're prepping uh, doing this podcast, and we went to the uh, right. the Met yes. uh, right at the beginning, and that the Maximilian exhibition in big letters, it was yes. like this exhibit funded by the the Ronald S. Lauder Foundation, and I remarked, right. "Oh, that's the guy who was ambassador to Austria in the 80s, uh, who probably got Jeffrey Epstein his fake Austrian passport." And somebody turned yes. around and was like, "What?" <laughs> Yeah. So um, that is literally, uh, yeah, that was literally uh, uh, something that I had stumbled upon and knew is that Ronald Lauder, who's like, I think the president of the World Jewish Congress and was uh, an heir to the Estee Lauder fortunes, uh, or maybe it was his brother was the the president of the um uh, the World Jewish Congress. Anyways, uh, he was uh, Ronald Reagan's ambassador. He actually, uh, following in the footsteps of Helene von Damme, the personal secretary to SS, uh, I believe it was SS Habschmfuhrer Otto von Bolschwing, who was in business with Gavin Newsom's dad in the Gettys in California. Uh, his secretary was the ambassador to Austria under Reagan, and then she was succeeded by Ronald Lauder. So I guess they're really playing both sides of the uh, Germanic spectrum here. Um, you know, they got the wealthy, like, German Jews, and then they have, like, a Nazi woman. Um, so they're covering all their bases, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but it was during this period where it was, you know, reported uh, during the whole kind of Epstein thing that, um, that yeah, he got, he managed to get a Saudi passport and an Austrian passport in the period of, like, 1986 and 87. So I think... Um, uh, I think what happened was, uh, well, I got blocked. I don't know what the original thing. Uh, oh, yeah. The Red Kahina thing was one most charming people I ever met was Michelle, uh, parentheses, not yet Obama. Another, a former boss, Ronald Lauder, uh, let me walk alone through Cezanne. I guess Cezanne is a, uh, what was Cezanne? Is that like an art gallery or something? Um uh, but then, sure. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, and then somebody, uh, and then somebody jumped in. Uh, somebody, uh, oh yeah, who follows me, said, um, "What led you to work with him? What kind of work did you do? What was it like enjoying a private tour of Cezanne paintings, courtesy of your evil boss, father's business partner, while you presumably seethed with hatred?" 
that was pri- at prior right. gamesman said that and then i i just this is august 8th so it's actually right before we started subliminal jihad but i just happened to write uh Ron Lauder was Reagan's ambassador to Austria in 1986-87, during which time Epstein mysteriously acquired an Austrian passport. Probably just a coincidence, smiley face, and that is why Red Kahina blocked me. Okay, did she ever say anything in response, or is she just blocked? I don't uh, believe so. No, she just blocked me. Like, she just blocked me, so that, uh, that's that's well, fucking it. Um, so, yes. you know, that was just, uh, that that was the end of the road. But getting back to, like, I think the heat was starting to get on uh, Red Kahina this year because this like mysterious account pops up, Paul Klein fan cam, and it just starts like basically dumping all of this research into the career and life and times of her father, uh, Paul Klein, who it turns out wasn't just a guy who went and basically created Playboy TV, but he was like a softcore porn producer. I think he was an NBC executive. He produced a lot of TV movies. And um, and it, like the deeper you go, this is like a very complicated like rabbit hole, uh, the Paul Klein thing. But the whole point of this account is basically that like Paul Klein had to have been CIA and like not only that but was like directly involved in the kind of social engineering culture manipulation that was happening in within the TV industry and in these corporations throughout the cold war and i think there's like quite a lot of um compelling circumstantial evidence like paul klein was also involved i believe with a a, a state department official named i want to say mark palmer I think they were in business together, and that was the guy that swooped into Central and Eastern Europe after, uh, during and after the collapse of communism and bought up and privatized all of the television networks and, like, communications kind of apparatus and basically, like, like he was, you know, uh, like— post-soviet robber baron who like moved in to like seize all the you know entertainment complex uh that would that had existed in this country so you know that's right off the bat it's like whoa okay like so if your dad was all involved in this like we get it maybe you don't want to talk about him running playboy but there's so much here and on top of that paul klein is like sound he comes off in certain interviews and uh you know documents and stuff that he's you know the, talking about his work he comes off as like an incredibly kind of cynical and sleazy and manipulative kind of uh, person when it comes to producing content and really uh and he, there's also quite a uh a militaristic bent in a lot of his porn movies from the 80s uh i'm looking at the cover here of rambo oh, sex platoon so that's like rambo but r-a-m-b dash o-o-o-h-h exclamation point um and oriental jade uh which is a kind of a ex- explore explore the sensual mysteries of the orient with the all-american girls come taste the forbidden desires of the exotic far east and um uh yeah rambo is x-rated the force is in you stars up and coming penthouse pets uh there's uh, up the military the comedy that takes the lid off the pentagon which uh i i noticed i i haven't been able to follow up on this yet but for some reason uh one of the production companies involved was a manson international presentation 
and actually the poster features like a kind of an animation of a of like a sexy woman in lingerie wearing like a a, a navy captain's hat kind of pulling down her panties as a uh, nasa space shuttle kind of flies towards her her derriere um and a bunch of like horny kind of world war ii soldiers like are like peeking out and like uh with their eyes agape so that's uh, up the Uh up the military um and i guess uh, paul klein pancam said um he has a yeah one of his good his or her good threads here um many of the pornos that paul klein had a hand in producing broadcasting paralleled far-right reaganite action cinema which is no surprise klein's former porn producer uh, harry allen towers with whom he made black venus was prolific in both genres um and i guess he also said uh towers and his zionist backers south africa productions were sickeningly fascist bloody pornographic celebrations of racism and imperialism one was described as quote maybe the worst movie ever made about africa a mechanical exercise in violence against africans um of course uh, klein's own pornos with towers like quote black venus were part of the same racist colonial oeuvre and uh i guess so black venus uh explicit that paul klein commissioned a playboy uh, explicitly tapped into the tradition of western colonizers pornographically depicting their authority and property over the virgin soil of the imperial territory oh okay uh, he asks i wonder if paul personally mailed a copy of black venus to his former investor Petchek, the spooky banker who participated in the elimination of patrice lumumba oh yeah th- he also talked about like basically his philosophy for making television was to play to the low lowest common denominator and like give the people like the the cheapest kind of like low calorie content possible there's a quote here from a magazine in a 1967 article in television magazine on programs in this quote vast gray belt the recently installed vice president paul klein observed that quality of audience was the most important criterion for evaluating such shows beyond the concrete of tenuous effect on programming vis-a-vis retention and development we need to cast a more critical eye on the notion of quality itself both as it was used by the industry in the 60s and 70s to refer to audiences and programming okay anyways that's actually not uh the hottest quote but you know there's just like there's there's a ton of shit there and so there it's very it's like he worked a lot with like the rant with like the rand corporation i think he had an involvement with sesame street which was uh as i think we mentioned in like that crypto cuttlefish blog episode like yes kids uh cookie monster was a psyop but i think you know he says like basically that uh and i i I remember hearing about this like years ago that there were like there was a lot of like academic research and stuff that and development that went into the creation of sesame street right um yeah i mean well there usually is with any kind of like children's programming uh Mm -hmm. people will always like you know try to bring in like specialists of some kind especially with you know well-funded uh shows like sesame street that have a certain pedigree Mm -hmm. uh people will always bring in like uh experts in early child education or something like that to try to uh match up their program with uh what they're uh, what what the current line is on on what children appreciate the most and can learn the best from. Yeah, and also uh, this is this is weird. Uh, there's also evidence they cooperated with the feds because um, they did get in trouble um, when there was like a crackdown on pornography in I think the 80s. I think they had like a they had like a TV network or something or a satellite broadcasting thing in like Utah that got raided, I believe. Um, but in this one tweet, he says, DOJ's chief of child exploitation and obscenity unit 
quote, said, Yesterday's plea was significant because Paul L. Klein and Jeffrey Younger had agreed to debrief the government on their contacts with the producers and distributors of the movies they broadcast. They had a deal with, like, the Justice Department. They were really big in, like, apartheid South Africa, producing, like, plantation slave, like, slave play, I guess. Uh, you know, uh, really mm-hmm. cool, like, uh, you know, uh, movies about, you know, romances do, between... Like, adult- Fodard type stuff or like plays uh actually you know what uh, yeah, uh wait what was that what kind of thing uh they did like uh apartheid like plays based on uh apartheid in in south africa like that they produced like uh you know or about like slavery like uh just to, like you know to clarify what the Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, actually, you know what? I'll just I'll just read this here because like uh, a Paul Klein fan cam on December thirty first uh, published like a screen capped like timeline of like all of their evidence. So maybe I think we can read this and uh, mull it over and then move on to the next one because uh, you probably mm-hmm. could go all day. But this is a good <clears throat> summation um, that. Uh, so 1961 and 1970, Paul Klein joins the research department NBC, headed by former OSS officer Hugh Beville, or Bevel. He quickly rises up the ranks and is promoted to VP. Klein partly attributes his rise to being in favor with Robert Sarnoff, president of NBC. Sarnoff was the son of David the General Sarnoff, RCA president, a fascist spook who helped establish Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. Another notable spook alum of the NBC research department is Klein's good friend Richard Lindheim, who later authored an obituary for Klein. Lindheim headed the Institute for Creative Technologies, a CIA, DARPA, and military collaboration to design military hardware, virtual reality applications for war, and more. 1970 to 76, Klein takes a sabbatical from NBC to start Computer Television Inc., Huh, a hotel pay TV firm. Donald Kirk, an alum of Naval Research Laboratories and a military intel contractor, develops the two-way CATV technology for Klein's company. Computer Television Inc.'s two principal investors were Time Life and Schroeder Capital Corp. Time Life invested in Klein's company under the direction of Barry, Z- Barry Zorthian, a career voice of America and USIA officer and CIA asset, recently returned from his role as chief of psychological operations in the war against Vietnam. That was a big one. Schroeder Capital Corp. was a boutique venture capital firm and subsidiary of Schroeder, known for its ties to the CIA, Alan Dulles, and Nazi industrialists. Its president, Stephen Petschek, came from one of the wealthiest families in Czechoslovakia, whose interests were represented by John Foster Dulles for decades. As an aide to U.S. Ambassador William Burden in Belgium, Petschek has been involved in the plot to liquidate Patrice Lumumba. He joined Burden and CIA Station Chief uh, Larry Devlin in a trip to the Congo uh, six months prior to Lumumba's execution. I wonder if Herb Cohen, uh, Frank Zappa's manager, was with him. Uh, mm. Time buys out Klein's stake in Computer Television Inc. and then promptly sells CTI to Spectradyne. Very Pinchonian. Um, uh, Spectradyne has been, had been founded a few years earlier by former engineers of Collins Radio, a major Mark Collins Rector. Uh, just footnoting that um a major cia contractor who were setting out to produce communications hardware for the military spectrodyne was able to buy cti thanks to a timely cash infusion from john adele adele spent 11 years in the u.s air force including a stint doing quote semi-undercover work in turkey before going into venture capital where he invested in multiple military electronics and signal communications companies 1970-76 other activities during his sabbatical from nbc klein also participates in multiple side projects linked to military and 
intelligence personnel. He helps Barry, quote, Barry Psyop Zorthian develop HBO. He gets brought in as a consultant to the CIA front, Ford Foundation, then headed by Arch Spook and co-architect of the Vietnam War, McGeorge Bundy. He consults for the Children's Television Workshop, created by Bundy and Joan Gans Cooney. Cooney, a former USIA officer and another alum of the CIA's Congress for Cultural Freedom, describes Klein as her, quote, mentor in spirit. Uh, Klein also consults for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, headed by former Secretary of Army and Cywar Specialist Frank Pace Jr. Clay Felker brings Klein onto the editorial board of New York Magazine alongside Gloria Steinem confirmed CIA agent. Felker, the founder of New York Magazine, had collaborated with Steinem on her CIA operations targeting the World Youth Festivals less than a decade prior. Uh, 1966 to 79, after selling his stake in Computer Television Inc., Klein returns to NBC and is soon promoted to executive VP and head of programs, becoming one of the highest-ranking officers in the entire organization. Declassified CIA documents from this period confirm that CIA officials were meeting with NBC executives to discuss ways of disseminating CIA propaganda through TV programming. In the face of mounting public criticism of the CIA in the aftermath of the Church Committee, Klein invites former DCI Richard Helms on to an NBC program to help clear the air. Helms headed the CIA when Schroeder Capital invested in Klein's CTI. In a later espionage trial involving a former CIA agent, it was revealed that Helms had used a Schroeder Trust account to give the agent $38,000 in, quote, back pay instead of a check from the Treasury. Following the Zionist invasion of Lebanon in 78, Klein airs the NBC show Holocaust, which was by design a function uh, a Zionist propaganda effort. Klein brought in Zionist and close collaborator of the CIA, Mark Tannenbaum, to be script consultant for the show. Tannenbaum was Klein's preferred advisor for programs that pertained to the interests of Israel. Archival documents reveal a sophisticated and coordinated effort led by Tannenbaum's American Jewish Committee and NBC to promote and supplement the rollout of the uh, show to serve Zionist interests. Uh, One of Klein's frequent collaborators during this period was the writer James Michener. Michener was a CIA asset who used his career as a writer for co- as a cover for eliminating radicals who had infiltrated one of the CIA's Asian operations. When Klein was working with them, both Tannenbaum and Michener took a trip to Southeast Asia with the CIA cutout International Rescue Committee. The delegation included CIA asset Bayard Rustin and William Casey, the future director of CIA for Reagan. 1979-82, Klein leaves NBC and starts his own production company, PKO, Paul Klein Organization. PKO teams up with Osmond Communications for an inc- exclusive two-year partnership for a slate of productions budgeted to total at least 4.6 million. Osmond was headed by Robert F. Bennett, a CIA agent and associate of Richard Helms. Prior to taking over Osmond in 1978, he'd operated multiple CIA cutouts like the Mullen Company. Uh, interesting. Um, uh, Mullen, huh? Hmm. Oh, okay. Um, uh, well, uh, it's a common name. It's a common okay, name. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, confirmed, uh, confirmed during Watergate to be a CIA front and the Summa Corporation. I actually looked into that. I wasn't able to confirm it. Um, PKO's venture with Osmond. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, so, okay. So anyways, uh, this wouldn't be the only instance of major PKO productions involving CIA financers or partners going belly up. In 1982, a PKO production set to star Sophia Loren folds after the death of the Gladio banker Roberto Calvi and the ensuing scandal implicating the Gladio Bank Banco Ambrosiano, which is financing P- PKO's production. So Gladio link. Then 82 to 84, the accumulation of unrealized productions proves to be no setback at all for Klein. Soon Hugh Hefner is on the phone, offering Klein the chance to lead Playboy's foray into cable television. Klein is brought in as corporate senior VP of Playboy 
Enterprises and named president of Playboy's Pay Cable Network and Playboy Productions. And his wife, Janet, takes over Klein's responsibilities at PKO. At uh, 83, Christy Hefner announces the creation of Playboy Video Corp., a subsidiary of Playboy Enterprises. Klein is named president, thereby taking charge of all Playboy's operations in production, cable, home video, domestic and foreign pay syndication, commercial syndication, and theatrical distribution. Um, this is the la- last slide here. Uh, 84 to 90, Klein leaves Playboy and in no time becomes president of High Life, like H-I-L-I-F-E, a newly formed adult pay TV service. High Life was a joint venture between Paul Klein and, my God, Domestodyne. <laughs> Domestodyne <laughs> was a gen- itself a joint venture with of Microdyne and Domesticom. Microdyne was another military and intelligence contractor that produced classified signals and weapons technology. Microdyne had made the news a couple years prior for its participation in an FBI sting of a Cuban diplomat whom the U.S. accused of being an intelligence agent. Klein suddenly leaves High Life before the channel even gets off the ground. Wasting no time, he joins the Pleasure Channel as its new president. His stint at the Pleasure Channel proves short-lived like the channel itself. Klein and his wife, Janet, then start Tuxedo and American Ecstasy, uh, three X's, softcore and hardcore satellite pornography channels respectively which they operate under the umbrella of their of their company home dish only satellite network um, along with uh, Klein's former Playboy Tuxedo and American Ecstasy become the largest cable and satellite broadcasters of pornography in the country. After the Klein's hardcore pornography ends up in the hands of children, HDO executives, including Paul and wife Janet, are indicted on state and federal charges. This is interesting. Mario Cuomo refuses to extradite the Klein's, and eventually the Klein's take plea bargains in exchange for providing information to the feds on the producers and distributors they worked with. In one case, they are fined five thousand dollars and compelled to pay seventy five thousand each to two children's families and another time find 150k hdo is reportedly driven out of business as satellite companies pull their service doing due to ongoing uh, litigation and finally 90 to 96 paul klein cleans up in typical paul klein fashion the end of hdo only opens new doors for him and his family in no time klein is back on his feet and soon joins mark palmer for the quote gold rush in the former communist bloc where they install a media empire and privatize and loot the people's assets on a devastating scale a giddy Klein remarks at the time, quote, what we're talking about is a virtually untapped market of 250 million people. Mark Palmer was a, disting- a distinguished CIA asset who, on his own telling, spent his entire career devoted to the cause of anti-communism. With the State Department, he had been stationed in the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia, and prior to joining Klein, had just resigned as ambassador to Hungary in order to set up Central European Media Enterprises, CEME. And backed by his eight guerrillas, uh, parentheses, Ronald Lauder was the primary backer, but the guerrillas also included the Bromfmans of Seagram's, Peter Monk, and others. Palmer was instrumental in arranging... Oh, my God. Okay, this is wild. Palmer was instrumental in arranging the delivery of Stinger missiles to the Mujahideen was involved in the CIA's Poland operations with Solidarity, headed color revolution operations in Hungary, was one of the leads on Reagan's Project Truth, a far-reaching anti-communist war program that targeted the USSR, Nicaragua, Poland, Afghanistan, Southeast Asia, and more. He was the lead architect of NSD-77, which we talked about in the Victory episode, which, quote, laid out a comprehensive framework for psychological warfare, which also established the NED for which Palmer was a co-founder. Okay, so that takes us right back to literally, like, the Peter Schweitzer gang of, like, in the Reagan White House and shit. And Paul Klein was, like, pretty much—he's, like, the the fucking Forrest Gump. He's, like, the sleazy Forrest Gump of the Cold War. He literally pops up everywhere. Um, And particularly this idea of uh, kind of 
teaming up with all these military and intelligence contractors and uh there, there seems to be like a psyopy element to his media career would you yeah. agree with that uh yeah i'm just reading uh you know while you've been uh talking i've been reading a little bit of uh some of uh the about some of the films that uh were uh made uh as a paul klein productions or, or in partnership with, with paul klein such as the sort of plantation genre of uh south african films which is all kind of like a very snm themed uh yeah. sort of movies about uh these uh plantations sometimes actually set it seems uh in the american south uh but uh yeah there's he also apparently did a bunch of movies um that were uh in partnership with golan and globus oh uh, yeah the we, cobra producers uh, right had, yeah exactly um and uh yeah uh there's one uh that is mentioned in, in a paul klein fan cam tweet um called uh operation thunderbolt uh which uh -oh. is produced in israel and celebrated the rescue of hijacked jewish passengers held at entebbe airport the year before more pertinently, Cannon's American Ninja 4, The Annihilation, filmed in Lesotho, but was set in an unidentified state peopled mostly by black actors and extras speaking Kausa, principally a South African tongue, features a plot concerning dastardly Arab terrorists and a Muslim dictator. Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, wow. Uh, and also, it's, yes, it's, worth, it's, of... it's worth saying, you know, lest anybody pull, like, the Jim Morrison and be like, you know, you're, you're extrapolating too much. I believe that Molly Klein, when she was young, became the president of PKO in, like, the mid to late 80s, kind of right around the same time that he was going to start getting into the Eastern European markets to... Uh, you know snatch up all these assets and stuff like that so like she was yeah. really a part of it was like a kind of a family business and she was like intimately involved so she's spoken so um at length and like eloquently about like the ability of like media to psyop people that um, this all yeah. comes as Actually very interesting well, if you want to, like, uh, enjoy yourself for probably, like, a relatively long time, uh, I would do a search on Twitter for those who aren't blocked, or I guess you can go incognito. Uh, just do a search for at Red Kahina and the word Buffy. Uh, oh, yeah. Because, <laughs> uh, she's obsessed with Buffy, and it's, like, she basically blames Buffy for all sorts of, like, social problems. Like, uh, for, uh, for instance, like, in all sorts of cultural phenomena, like, are all traced back to Buffy in, like, the hmm. Red Kahina paradigm. Like, uh, this is a great one. Greta, I assume Thunberg, is Buffy, magical, occult authority, ordained as your leader by unseen powers. And uh, there's a great reply, which is just someone saying, like, Buffy the vampire slayer and uh yes that is what she means she even uses buffy to like defend i guess like her sort of uh take on like how people are too concerned about like the grooming of young girls or whatever or sort uh -huh. of have a uh, you know too much sexual morality uh she says i still can't get over how erotophobic they are what do they think happens to people from sex exactly they think it's fine that adolescents get a tattoo for life but not have sex for a few hours Ugh. why they have seen and repressed images of buffy kissing a cute guy and behind her back turning into a hideous reptilian vampire <laughs> who will slice her into pieces steal her soul and damn her to an eternity of hellfire and sadistic feeding on nice people that is lying there in the subconscious as a danger they run from sexual intimacy it must be oh uh, god yeah and in the so light of 
like shame. You're... They're choosing not to grow up, not to mature, not to see experience because they are so terrified by life and the fact that growing up means making mistakes and getting hurt and rejected and failing and being heartbroken and killed by vampires. Um, for one, like I feel like she's never actually seen Buffy because Buffy like is always like more powerful than like your average vampire and yeah. like. Actually, most of the vampires that Buffy dated, you know, were good. Like yeah. Angel, you know, yeah. he was a vampire with a soul. He was a yep. good guy. And yep. also, he was much older than her. Yeah. So, uh, Rebecca Kina should approve of that. Uh, <laughs> she really should. She know, really should. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but, maybe she should reboot yeah, it with John Stepling uh, as showrunner. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. She should uh, be a lot. But yeah, like, uh, it's amazing. Like, uh, uh, Tarantino, Lynch, Coen Brothers, Zizek, Buffy, The Wire, Breaking Bad, all made Trump possible. Um, yeah she really hates the wire and also hates the sopranos and uh, a few others like that they're like really they're all like you know disgusting like fascist propaganda i mean yeah you know but it's like just so weird how like you know i feel like those are at least relatively like you know uh the wire and the breaking bad are, are relatively recent compared to buffy at least like uh but it really has like a central place in like her uh, analysis of like the cultural landscape of the United States. Uh, For on sure. May 11, 2020, she just tweeted, "It's Buffy, and we are the vampires." Um, <laughs> for whatever reason. Okay. Like, uh, uh, the, yeah, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot going on there. I feel like she was one of these like precocious Gen X kids. Um, I've definitely met people like this before that like grew, that grew up in Manhattan in the 80s and 90s, and they all had like very precocious experiences with like partying with drugs with sex with all these other things like it was kind of a wild time and so i think that they're still among a lot of maybe these like gen x people that grew up in that kind of paradigm like a like what's the big deal because it was like i don't know it was like fun and rock and roll and like cool back then and everyone was just party like there's a kind of um i don't know there's like a, a preciousness about where when in fact like there's probably a lot of seedy shit going on in the 80s and like really fucked up shit and uh i don't know if like just because she happens to interpret it in like a positive way from her own experience thinking like why why the hell you know uh shouldn't everybody else like everyone's being too uh, it's it's weird yes. it's like weird there's a lot go- and i think there's a lot of like projection and like sublimation of like her dad's like entire career and probably like her participation in some of this type of content which like you probably make a yeah, much stronger case maybe. like yeah against like pornography doing something deleterious to like the public yeah, imagination exactly. around sex yeah. than like uh buffy or whatever i'm not a fan of but i don't like buffy yeah. but like, like uh yeah. I, I still like come on like or you know yeah, uh any of these um, other kind of things she go she rails on regularly right yeah um yeah like uh i don't know i mean yeah joss whedon like his he's like sucks his like dialogue is like extremely awful and like yeah. uh, unbearable to listen to like a lot of the time mm-hmm. uh i mean like yeah i feel like maybe buffy was unique in, in being sort of soap opery in prime time and that's what people sort of appreciated about it like whereas it wasn't really episodic and it had the sort of evolving storyline so that's maybe what but uh, uh yeah i just want to read one more which is about uh <laughs> Uh, coronavirus that she tweeted on on March 17th of uh, 2020. 
many people are attracted to this storyline pageant charade because of what's best in them for their longing for a good community and collective generous project. They want to be told to help their elderly neighbors, to get them groceries. They want to contribute to something. They crave this contrived and managed solidarity and collaboration toward a common goal, not for what's fake, but for the kernel of the real solidarity it exploits. Goebbels understood this well, but notice the U.S. leaders are wised up and made common enemy non-human, as in Buffy. <laughs> I, I was kind of like, I was, there see, the end, that's like, the thing. I mean, yeah, Kahina like, has moment, kind of like a, a little bit like she's almost like the Marxist, like Alex Jones. Like she has these kind of like lucid moments of clarity. Yeah. But then, like, if you know anything about kind of like her family background and like her capacity for kind of like going off the rails or like you know, injecting Buffy into that is like, oh, okay, you know. Yeah, it's a but weird I feel like sort of like into Buffy. Uh, I mean, I guess like I get what she's saying, where like. Yeah, not like a like a vampires can be exterminated en masse. So I see like the the point. Like you know, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. it's Buffy and we are the vampires. You know, like uh, this whole like genocidal uh, Mr. Global agenda. <laughs> like yeah, I get it, but it's just like kind of comical that like the the salience uh, that is given to Buffy. Interestingly, like uh, I read on Paul Klein fan cam recently. Uh, I wonder if it's still like uh, up there, but that uh, Paul Klein also had some connections with some dude. What was his name? It was B something uh, who was really uh, like a big promoter of like sort of uh, not only like right wing publications, but also like anti occult literature, uh, Balsiger, like a Christian fascist spook. Okay. Uh, an anti-commerce operative uh, who was linked to some of the CIA's most notorious Gladio Contra groups like Alpha 66 and the World Anti-Communist League. PKO collaborated on multiple projects with him, and he also was like a, a big publisher, you know, of uh, literature about the occult during the during the satanic panic, I guess, like, for law enforcement use. Um, oh, yeah, kind of uh, like that classic yeah. uh, VHS video uh, that you can, I think, find on Archive that's, like, like here's, like, your law enforcement guide to, like, hunting satanic cults. Like, uh, you know, they, they walk around the park, and there's, like, uh, they're, like, in San Francisco, and there's, like, a SETI and sigil, like, dri- like chalked on the ground or something. Well, like, now you see this is, yeah. like, from the Temple of Set, and, like... Blah blah blah. You right. Know, uh, yeah. Ex- yeah. 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 Um. Right. Like like a guide like that that will be like if you see this spirally triangle like that means Peter like you know Peter yeah or whatever like or something like that you know like uh or like after nine eleven most people were hired and it's like if you see a Muslim wearing a headband you know that means that they're ready to be a martyr like <laughs> they must like be tackled uh, yeah you know, like yeah these goofy like fake experts yeah but you really um, see like but, a neck uh, like they're they're so plugged into kind of like the the kind of the psychological war warfare like uh these like think tanks and then like gladio and like yeah you know. well it's really yeah and even like it's very interesting the whole thing with like you know oh uh we're being programmed to accept like this sort of abstract genocide through like the idea of slaying vampires when like meanwhile like pko was like creating these like literally genocidal like action movies like targeting like specific like political causes and like people like in a very like precise way like uh like eh, again like if you were so close to like this nexus of people that were doing shit like that like i feel like you have a certain kind of obligation to kind of she definitely has an obligation to address it i mean like uh she certainly has never been above like twitter drama before you know she'll like inveigh against uh phil grease for like his buffy-esque like 
fascization uh, <laughs> of, you know, a genocidal anti-communist line disguised mm-hmm. as Marxism, but uh-huh. she won't address, like, Paul Klein fan cam. Like, I, I you know, don't think it like, has been addressed yet. I, I mean, I can't tell anymore because I'm blocked, but I, I don't, I think it's been yeah. pretty mum def- the entire uh, time. Yeah, it has not. It has not, as yeah. far as I can, um, as I can see. Uh, yes. Um, okay. But, uh, yeah. All right. I think um, we can. Uh, Phil for his part. I yeah. just wanted to say uh, last thing. Uh, I just want to say for his part, uh, he had like a, uh, some amazing uh, critique of uh, germ theory uh, recently. I did hear um, that. I did hear that. Yeah. That, yes. That's... Uh, he said uh, 800 years and they're still pretending leprosy is a quote infectious disease caused by bacteria. Um. Okay, well, as opposed to what? Um, as opposed to, <laughs> I don't know what it is. Uh, in his, uh, he says, understanding the blanket scientific fraudulence of the late 19th century. I mean, that is kind of true. Which crowned germ theory and with it the power of the chemical pharmaceutical industry is key to understanding what's happening today. So I guess Phil Greaves believes in, like, miasma theory? I don't know. I, I'd have to really read more Phil Greaves tweets to know. I, I don't follow him, although I don't believe that I'm blocked. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah uh, ironically you're blocked by all these people but i'm not um (laughs) well i i stormed like the buffy the vampire castle uh buffy the vampire castle wow we'll get back to we're not done with vampires uh yeah we're not done with vampires but uh vampire all right so we're we're at Um, uh we're we're like one hour now so we spent uh but you know we had to do it we had to uh, to break all that shit down So, okay, uh, do you want to read um, number three? Yeah, how about three? If you guys are open to it, could you talk more about your experience visiting the DPRK? Seems like a super fascinating trip and something I'm personally interested in doing one day. I'd love to hear how that came about and how it went. Um, yeah, I mean, sure. I would recommend going. I mean, I don't know. Like, it's probably, like, if anything, become, like, a more accommodating and easy tourist experience since we went, I would think. Yeah. I mean, obviously not now, like, in COVID, but, like, in general. Yeah. Um, I don't know, like, how much that landscape, like, COVID will just change the national, like, international landscape, like, you know, the global landscape in general. But, uh, yeah, like, uh, I would say that since we went, like, at the very like beginning of uh kim jong-un's uh tenure as yes uh, yeah it was within a within a year of kim jong-il dying i think we were actually planning the trip when kim jong-il died 
Yes. Um, and are, so, sure. yeah, so we just decided to, like, kind of, uh, you know, go ahead with it anyways. And, um, yeah, I mean, it is definitely up there, you know. Uh, it was part of um, a, a larger trip that we did. I mean, still probably the most, you know, memorable and kind of impactful definitely, and yeah. adventurous. Yeah, that trip. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Something that, you know, I wish we had the opportunity to do again, you know. I guess that was some time ago now, like when, I guess maybe we were, were younger and had that more freedom. I mean, well, the world wasn't under, like, a planet lockdown. Uh, yes. Galactic, reptilian, vampire uh, takeover. Uh, so, <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, it also was before, yeah, it was um, before the new, the, like, the, re- the full renewal of, like, tensions with Russia. So it was, like, this weird period right. where I think it might have been, actually on like the tail end of medvedev uh because didn't wasn't he around until 2012 yeah Yeah, so i was because before we went i was studying in russia and you guys the other people who traveled with us and uh yeah you uh, met up with me in russia uh in moscow which is kind of why we went i I think we it started as a kind of lark about if, if you were to get into this program in russia uh we should go meet you there i had always like fantasized about doing the trans-siberian railway since i was a teenager Mm -hmm. it just seemed like super cool and then you know it goes all the way to beijing uh through mongolia and you know once you're in beijing you know i mean i had to confess like i saw some of like the vice like documentaries like back in the day of like shane smith going to north korea and at that time that seemed like a really kind of uh cool thing to try to uh do if you're you know in the neighborhood so yeah. to speak and right, like we had talked about yeah we talked about doing the trans-siberian railroad and i think that like i remember clearly like we were sitting in like your apartment and i was on wikipedia yeah like looking at the trans-siberian railroad map and noticed that it had a stop in pyongyang but we weren't ultimately able to do that because americans couldn't take the train into pyongyang we had yeah. to take the, a plane uh on air Corio. uh the yeah their um, their airline yeah yeah uh, any a lot yeah. of other nationalities can basically take a train through dandong across the uh mm-hmm. i forget which river it is there but uh basically you can go in and then you get a nice little train ride through the countryside of the dprk but americans are were considered probably still uh not quite trustworthy enough to just sort of ride right. through the open country so you have to get flown right into the the heart of pyongyang and uh so yeah i mean we we looked at there's a number of agencies that like will do that that can hook you up with you know basically arranging these like state tours so i mean i'm sure probably most people know this but like you can't just go to north korea obviously you have to go on like a state guided tour um and there's a lot of options It, it does i follow a few instagram accounts of like i think like choreo tours is one and uh like young pioneer tours there's a few different um ones and uh they you know you could you could it's like a whole package thing it's like you could basically do kind of minimal one i think we were like a little bit like capped in our resources at that point so we opted to just do like a basically like a four-day trip inside the yeah. dprk mm-hmm. and you know yeah, we did like three or four days yeah yeah like, like there's one that's where you could travel lupine yes lupine travel exactly uh uh which is run of the uk so these are usually like british companies or something that do this former club promoter uh, yeah (laughs) transition to being like a north korea tour facilitator really Uh, just an extreme tourism kind of thing like he would go to you know borderline war zones or places that were kind of locked down and remote uh and you know but north korea was really kind of the like marquee uh the 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 top seller if you will but Mm -hmm. i mean i i 
I think it was cool because we had been in Russia for a while and then we were in Mongolia for a little while and got further, further away from the West in a kind of gradual way and also further deeper yeah. into the kind of the communist and post-communist, like post-Soviet world. Like you notice yeah. that. We went to some really cool places across Russia. Like we went to Omsk. Yep. Uh, like, P- Param cool, like, like, was a really cool city um, yeah, in the middle Param, of the country. Like, you know, we stopped at like some like kind of uh, slightly out of the way or unusual places, which I think was a really good uh, intuition. You know, we didn't just go to like the like hit the big uh, cities or you know the we we did a couple of uh, out of the way ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Real, I think it was in Pam or maybe it was in Omsk, like that we went on that like ferry. Oh and yeah, like uh, it was very yeah, it was very Chekhovian, like on the river, like out there, you know, like and I remember seeing like the gulls flying, you know, and like uh, when you like hear the title of Chekhov's play, the seagull, like if you're an American, you picture like these disgusting white seagulls that you see like here, but <laughs> yeah. like in Russia, you know what the you know what the Chaika of the play really refers to is like these beautiful majestic black gulls that like mm. were flying all over like the river. Um, yeah, uh, really beautiful perm. And, yeah. uh, and yeah. kind, of, kind of a funky city too like there's a lot of like intricate like graffiti and stuff like that and like uh i remember you know the the chicken nuggets the mcdonald's in perm were not to be basic but they were like really excellent mcdonald's in russia yeah. i think this is like kind of an op probably the KFC, but like like chicken nuggets i remember as well i mean once you got to a certain point uh like they they were you like really couldn't you know depend on some some of the fast food but yeah and also in russia something that was great was that there were like a lot of mcdonald's like sort of knockoffs that were like Uh kind of uh you know uh i remember we went to one uh i don't that was it was before when i was in russia when i was in yaroslavl which is an interesting city we went to like mac duggins or something like some kind of like uh, yeah it was like everyone got sick like in uh you know my class uh, who was there um mm, nice, but, nice. Yeah. Um, well uh but uh yeah it was uh yeah so like so when we got there i felt like we were like kind of seasoned and a little, a little ready to like get in there and like it's like the kind of the the final stage like of the you know of of, of yeah, this we trip were excited. like i remember you before like that you were like this is like christmas morning like it was really really exciting yeah. uh like yeah we were definitely more excited than you know like scared or whatever but it did have a thrill to it because you yeah, know that there are our yeah. friend told me some story like after we got there that like people i don't know where he heard this but he was like people in the hotel would get like kidnapped or held for ransom or something or like slash and then like put on life support or, like you know put in the hospital and like they would you know and uh he was like, yeah, I didn't want to tell you that because, like, uh, I didn't want you guys to get scared and not want to come. Uh, but I feel like that maybe. I don't know. Like That doesn't sound uh, right. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, and so, I don't know. Like, I don't know where you heard that. But I, uh, I just remember the kind of, like, I mean, him believing that that was true and then, like, not telling us. Like, kind of, like, annoying. But yeah. anyway, uh, yeah, I definitely wasn't scared going. Uh, so, it was, I did have, because I didn't have a visa back. Like, not that that would be a big deal, because I just could have, like, gone back to the United States maybe from the airport in China instead of, like, actually leaving. But I didn't have a Chinese visa to return, so I had to uh, get one there, which actually was easier than it was in a lot of other countries, because I didn't have to go to, like, the embassy myself. Because, like, uh, according to our guides, like, in North Korea, you know, your picture, your passport, like, that represents you. You know, you are your ID, you know. Uh 
so <laughs> they could they just took my uh passport um you know oh yeah, passport yeah. to north korea uh, no they did the they took all of our pass uh, i think they, they took all of our passports and then they they had like a sort of a temporary like visa form so they wouldn't have to stamp our passport because they i guess you know it was like to avoid you know u.s customs kind right, of like yeah, clocking you on the way back Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah yeah right but um, they did they they took uh, when we got to the airport in pyongyang uh they yeah so they they you know very like fr- in a friendly way uh confiscated our passports and our uh our cell phones yes you're not did. allowed to have an um, iphone inside of north korea i don't know if it's still that way today but you basically had to surrender that you you were however yeah. allowed to have cameras like both video cameras and photo cameras uh which like right. i was able to make a lot of use of i got some really fun uh footage and shots and stuff uh around the dprk but uh yeah i mean in terms of uh like the substance of the tour i mean how would you describe kind of the rhythm of it and yeah. i don't know Oh, well, I just was going to uh, say that that was the one time when I was like, the, like, I got a little bit freaked out was when, like, you know, they came back to me about my visa and they said, like, you know, we'll have it for you in like 14 days or something like, you know, they said something about 14 days. And I was like, oh, I can't stay here for 14 days. Like, uh, <laughs> and but they meant like I would have 14 days like in China before I had to return or something like that. You know, OK, uh, yeah, yeah, just, yeah. Like, but for a second, I just got. But other than that, like it wasn't scary. Like, you know, I showed some of the video that you saw to like my brother and he was like, I would not feel safe. Like, you know, we were at the DMZ and stuff like that. But uh-huh. it was not like, you know, I guess I don't know. Uh, probably it's not a perception that people who listen to civil jihad would have that it would be like a frightening experience but i guess it is a perception that some people have but yeah um anyway yeah like uh i remember well two things like definitely struck me about it well first of all i remember like uh we went to the like the one hotel that they have in pyongyang the young right yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't really actually know, but like, uh, you know, they're one uh, hotel, which is very large. Um, and and it's kind the, of an uh, emote yeah, remember, in the middle of, a, of the river there. Yeah, it's um, on an island. You yeah, know, uh, so, you're not, you know, like uh, that's the thing. Like you're monitored kind of the whole time. Like within the hotel, you have freedom of movement, but in terms of leaving, you know, it's very controlled by your kind of minders. At least this is a state tour, which is what you can do uh, in North Korea as, as a tourist. Um, I remember, you know, instantly like going to like the gift shop and getting like, uh, you know, copies of, and they take like us dollars, like, or, uh, or they took, yeah. they took RMB too, I think. Right. That, like, that's the, but it's part US of the idea RMB. behind running these tours is the way to generate hard currency from yeah, tourists. For sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They had like pictures of like the North Korean currency, but we never got to actually like hold it. It was or illegal had, for like, us, I think, know, to have to possess North Korean currency, the yuan. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yes. Um, uh, but yeah, I remember uh, dropping some USD on like copies of Kim Jong Il's works, uh, his philosophical and uh, you know uh, literary critical works. Uh, same. In, in in the gift shop, like right away. Um, one thing that definitely struck out, stuck out to me was that underneath the hotel there's like a uh i guess like a weird basement that has like many aspects to it like yeah uh, and only foreigners are allowed there like our guides weren't allowed to go down there and yeah. like uh, uh like apparently had never been there which is interesting you know they like yeah. live in that hotel uh and their job is just to be guides and live there uh but they had never actually gone uh, to that basement which when we went there was very odd you know there was, was like an abandoned egyptian themed 
like uh, karaoke you know, room or something. Yeah, there was like a, a big karaoke, karaoke room, rooms, and yeah. I, I I do remember there was like a there was kind of like a, a champagne. Or like a you know kind of like that those like those kind of like flat and wide like champagne glasses almost like a margarita glass there was like a there was like mm-hmm. a tower of margarita glasses that were filled with some kind of like strawberry daiquiri and there was like mold floating in them there was mold like on the ceiling there was mold all over the place yeah and there was also like an exercise room uh, that was just full of like workout equipment and like an exercise bike I think there's a picture of me like riding the exercise bike in that yeah. room <laughs> um, yeah and you know there I was like I don't know if we were supposed to go into that part because that was like all dark it, it was all dark uh, but was, it wasn't you know, it wasn't locked off or anything it was prominently there yeah it was blocked off and like as soon as you got down like it was very prominently like accessible like that there was this extra part of this area this basement yeah uh, but there so, was like, there were a few of... there were a few amenities that were active down there so i remember one night us uh getting like pretty drunk and going bowling in the bowling alley down there yeah there was a bowling alley down there yeah, yeah. There was a ping pong table and there was a casino yes uh, and there was a casino ch- uh chinese guys down yeah. there um, and i yeah. i can report that i think they were playing like they're maybe playing baccarat and blackjack and i can report that like i uh it it was kind of a high roller casino by like american standards Mm -hmm. because i believe the the minimum bet was like 35 dollars something it was 35 35. yeah Yeah, i remember did you win 80 yes i played one hand of blackjack in the dprk i won and then i like cashed out (laughs) um and i i bought some more like Uh, north korean swag with like my 35 dollars um including mm -hmm. a book that i i definitely I think we should do maybe like a whole episode on because recently I saw Paul Schrader like a uh, post on Facebook that Martin Scorsese had just given it to him. And that is the one book I purchased in the gift shop, which is Kim Jong Il's On the Art of the Cinema, uh, which oh, I yes, believe he wrote in 19. 90- yeah, yes. yeah. It, it, and I, I was actually That's... reading with my friend the other night. I was reading some passages from it. Um, and we had both had to agree that like, there's some real fire in that book. Like it's, of course uh, there's like, it's just like, it's, it's a great book. Like I love, yeah, similar uh, to, similar to the Juche on the Juche idea and his other work on the, uh, art of opera. Yeah. Uh-huh. There's definitely some, uh, you know, impressive phrases in there. You know, he really knows how to, uh, hit you with the, uh, you know, the, the rhetoric he's got it. He's got it down. I mean, yeah. Uh, and I, I think yeah. something that was impressed upon us, like throughout the tour, cause we went to a number of locations, basically the, the concept is like in the morning you go down to like the big buffet area and have breakfast. And then you're got, you meet your guides on the bus. There's like columns of like tour buses just like lined up perfectly in the parking lot. And so like your bus rolls up your three guides. I think we had, uh, if I remember correctly, there was Miss Lee, Miss Kim, and Mr. O, yeah, who are guides. O, yeah, right. and Mr. O was, uh, like, super based. If Mr. O, if you ever hear this, uh, shouts out to you. He was our favorite. We'll talk about him in a second. But anyways, like, we would take us around to different, you know, monuments and historical sites and museums and things like that. But, like, one thing you definitely get uh, impressed upon you as you go around this is, like, the real uh, value that the Kim you know the kims and i guess like the the culture and the society in general really placed on like theater opera performance oh, like yeah, spectacle sure. like uh mm-hmm. art and things like that and you know particularly yeah, like kim really jong to see yeah in the art of opera kim jong il talked a lot about uh the sea of blood kind of like how yes. aristotle says oedipus rex is like the ideal tragedy you know uh-huh. sea of blood was the ideal opera which i really wish 
we were able to see, but we did see one show, which was like a children's show. Yes, uh, children's they, performance. They, uh, it could, well, yeah, because yeah. it was uh, it was the the one special thing about the week we were there is it was Children's Week in Pyongyang, mm-hmm. and so yes, everywhere around the right. city, and I think you can remember how delighted I was the whole time that like yes, everywhere you go, there's like these children. like they field trip, yeah, yeah, these field trip groups of like cute little like north korean children in their classic like young pioneer outfits like their blue shorts and their white shirts and their big red scarves and they're all like for them the vibe i got was like this is like going to disneyland basically Mm -hmm. so like i guess kids from all around the dprk get like bust in to uh pyongyang for like a week and then there's like all kinds of i remember the first day there was like a huge at the like the soccer stadium there was like a huge children's rally and kim jong-un was there like presiding over it um he wasn't really saying much back then but uh but like he was there and like and you know little girls were like reading poems to him and like this fairy we saw it during the performance at the children's palace as well which by the way was like uh i think we can agree uh extremely impressive yes it was very impressive and like the thing that was great about it was that like it really was like just what you would kind of imagine like there was like a whole sequence it was kind of like you know the kids had incredible like uh athletic and like acrobatic prowess and like you know in these doing these kind of uh narrative style dances Mm -hmm. um I feel like there was one where like they were like uh they're like they were dre- like some of them were dressed up as like capitalist pigs that they oh, like yeah. uh you know like uh, attacked or something or you know were were subverted and there was one where a bunch of boys like came out like wearing like a sort of tank prop on their heads yeah. and like yeah. shot like a laser or like a you know, rocket you know at, I think there was uh, like a like there was the a big projected yeah like, there's <laughs> yeah there was a big projected like, screen uh, in the back that would play like different graphics and at one I think when the the tank little tanky boys came out uh and were doing their thing there was like a, a sh- the animated like icbm like taking off like in the on the, on the project, yeah, projected right. on the no, screen the, yeah. yeah 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 true yeah, there was also there was definitely uh, a backdrop of like their sort of rockets launching off into space as well at, at satellites one, at one point during one song yeah um right and they had uh, a kind yeah, of the, the, the sort of orbiting the earth yeah, and the shows yeah. were also, like, the, the sort of punctuation points uh, of the sort of maybe, like, three acts of the show were uh, a, a sort of triplet of ballads uh, uh, to all of the Kims. So, like, right, you yeah, know, they about... Right, yeah, a new one about Kim Jong-un, which was really fun. The finale. Yeah, that, that was the finale. Yeah, Kim Jong-un. Yeah, no, oh, my God. It was so fun. And then, like, I mean, like, these choirs, it was, like, it was was like reaching kind of like you know uh beach boy like pet sounds level like ethereal yeah they like had great beauty. harmonies oh uh, my god yes mm-hmm. and uh yeah there was one yeah there were these italian people with us uh on our tour who we thought like maybe were journalists or something like you know like uh, uh, you didn't i remember off. you yeah. telling me like we think the italians are spies at one point uh in the hotel uh, room well not spies but like you know journal like there was something, something. about the Italians. yeah they they, they, they didn't uh, yeah, uh like, we were in a group of like 10 people that all spoke english but they were kind of the two that were a little bit 
uh, kind of icy and like withdrawn and like kept to themselves. Mm-hmm. And it just seems yes. like, I don't know, like, don't you, uh, I don't know what their deal was, but uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But at one point during the show, they were kind of invited up on stage and like they were made to hula hoop and like the kids like hula hooped like, you know, far better and like did all these crazy tricks where like someone would throw hula hoops onto them and they would seamlessly like catch it with their bodies and, and continue hula hooping. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the Italians had to like try to replicate like all these amazing things that they were doing where they like pick up hula hoops with their feet and like spin them onto their bodies and stuff like that uh and they just like you know humiliated themselves completely and everyone was like ha 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 you know like you <laughs> foolish westerners like trying to like replicate like this mastery that uh, oh, we have God. but amazing uh, yeah, yeah there's yeah. definitely like some desecration of the american and japanese flags like worked in they hate japan or well you definitely get an anti-Japanese uh, slant in the tour. What like, for good yeah. reason? You know, fair yeah. enough. Uh, same yeah. thing with America. You know, fair enough. Uh, but like a lot of the tour is like uh, focused on like the evils of the imperialists. Uh, yes. And the U.S. Uh, imperialists. And uh, yes. I believe at the, the the Korean War Museum that we went to, which was like very kind of impressive, and we had this like great uh, female military officer tour guide. Yes. Um, and mm-hmm. she sh- she like introduced the tour in front of this like gigantic mural of Kim Il Sung. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think as, as she, I'm trying to he think if I can remember the, the quote. People and like the Chinese yeah. soldiers uh, were like behind him coming to help. Uh, yeah, it was like uh, yeah. this picture like this is the great leader I mean, i'll try to direct quote this because uh, i remember i filmed it it was like this is the great leader president kim il Sung. the unwilled and brilliant leader who defeated the two imperialist powers in one generation the picture represents the invincible european people strongly united around greatly the president Kim Il-sung. So the greatly in this picture look always the front, from every place is sent. From everywhere the greatly looks as if following you. And uh, she also said that there was a kind of optical effect painted into the painting where Kim Il-sung's at the center and she said like the 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 great thing in the picture, um, from everywhere you look, the great leader looks as if following you. So wherever you're like standing in perspective, like looking at this gigantic mural, Kim Il-sung is like making eye contact with you. Mm-hmm. It's pretty wild. Yes. They showed us the big panorama. They showed us a lot of captured American weapons, like kind of bragged a little bit about well, like. We, went to go see, we got to see the USS Pueblo. Yeah, we did. Uh, we did. Yeah, uh, we got to go on board and explore, you know. Uh, they played some pretty yeah, great like DVDs when we went to different places that had a very like raw, raw, like kind of 1950s quality with it. Uh, like Tibia. Yeah, like that one. You know, it's like, you Uh, know, know, like the great leader Kim Jong-il says as follows, like the U.S. Yeah, there was like, yeah, video installations. There was a great diorama of the Korean War in that museum as well. Yeah, a 360 Uh, panorama. I remember like a lot of clips in the videos of like uh, Lyndon Johnson looking like outraged and like, you know, uh, like quotes from him. Like it was a mistake to like, uh, you know, test the Korean people. Like they are too... Uh, brilliant in solidarity. Um, They're too strong. And, uh, we uh, went to like the Juche yeah. Friendship Foundation, uh, where there was right. like little yes. uh, blocks from all around the world of like Juche Appreciation mm-hmm. Societies. Yeah, kind of sent. 
I remember we asked, like, can you believe in Juche, like, if you're not Korean? Because it kind of seems like Juche is sort of, you know, uh, just from, like, a, a glance, it would seem like Juche is all about the sort of, like, national character of, uh, you know, Ch- North Korean, song. Or, you know, yeah. you know, Koreans. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's sort of about uh, their sort of national identity. But I guess... Uh, anyone can believe in Juche uh, was the answer that we got. I don't. Yeah, I mean, they invited. Uh, uh, yeah. I believe they invited Eldridge Cleaver and his wife. Uh, and the Black Panthers went on a tour of North Korea in like 1970 or 71. And there was like, uh, there's definitely some uh, some good mutual appreciation where like the North Koreans maybe said something that like the Black Panther Party was sort of pursuing its own kind of unique policy of Juche in america uh hmm. you know and, and things like that uh, like uh you know I, I think there's definitely you know i mean yeah it was like interesting i mean our our guide mr maybe we'll just talk real quick about our guide mr O, because he's like the one uh north korean that we really like interacted with the most on like a personal level um because mm-hmm. mainly i guess he did live in that hotel and every night there was a microbrewery kind of in the lobby that had like right, this kind yeah. of cool bar it was like this kind of like groovy 80s kind of like this style bar i this is before i found islam so i was drinking as well uh, yeah yeah you, you were know, we were you all were. drinking this microbrewery one night like i do remember that we you know before we go into talking about mr o, oh yeah you want to talk about uh you know and our we kiwi, went to our like, kiwi you know, friend Cause you're not, we weren't supposed to go like, you know, uh, to like, uh, floors of the hotel outside our own, you know, somewhere off limits. So we did like, you know, one night drink some of like the snake wine that they were selling, like this really like, uh, (laughs) you know, high volume wine with a snake in it. Uh, and we like, like roamed around like the different floors exploring the hotel. We didn't get auto, uh, warm beard, obviously, uh, you know, so but we weren't super we like when that happened years later i remember people asking me like oh my god like don't you feel like so lucky like to make it out of there and not get like killed like Otto did and it's like well i had to tell i to this day i have to tell americans like we almost did what Otto warmbeard did we just didn't take it to be a very obviously very provocative level that he did which like all of us were well aware that like if you stole something off the wall like that you know like committing a crime there and and it not necessarily like a a committing a thought crime but committing like something that would get you arrested and in any country like stealing something that is a very bad idea um for whatever reason right and i mean like we weren't about to say like anything you know that would offend anyone either we just had of like you know respect i guess but you know and we did feel that we probably were being monitored. Uh, yes, there you know, were like the, I do remember there. Too. We had these big um, old-fashioned radios in all of our hotel rooms yeah, that had like third. They, they didn't work, us. and they had yeah. like thirty wires sticking out of them. And I was like, uh, yeah, okay, right. like you know, well, whatever. We had heard from like other sources that there was like a room where they monitored us from, and that's kind of what we were trying to find. The, it was the fifth and, floor. Uh, there was no fifth floor in the elevator, and so we assumed right. that, that was the surveillance floor. And that's actually, I think, the floor that Otto Warmbier like discovered and stole something from. So I think it was like extra oh, provocative. Really? I he stole like a poster, which was weird to me because you can like buy a poster for just you know uh, yes. some USD. Uh, they offer you like, every opportunity yeah. to buy like postcards, posters, banners, like DVDs music books like like literally they, like, they want you to buy all that stuff and it's like pretty affordable so the idea that like this yeah, college I mean, kid kind of led me to believe that there was something more to the auto warm beer story you know I agree. because uh especially like his background etc 
Like, I, yeah, it definitely wasn't just that, like, you know, he acted out a little bit. Uh, I do, like, uh, you know, I, that's kind of why I've always felt like there's a little, you know, it's not just, uh, you know, this American tourist stepped slightly out of line and, like, yeah. he went to camp forever and died. Um, but, yeah, I do remember that they, after that, Mr. O said to us, like, uh you know on the bus uh, the next fun. day go to microbrewery yeah like you <laughs> yeah. know you have fun like but you like you know you might find yourself like you know if you maybe go, uh, maybe you don't he would always say maybe in a very interesting way that was like one of his kind of go-to yeah. qualifier words when he wanted yeah. to tell you not to he do was. something but like wanted to not be like you know aggressive or whatever like maybe you don't go mm-hmm. wandering around the hotel late at night because maybe you get lost and it's dark and then you fall into the river and then nobody's able to help you right didn't he say something <laughs> yeah, like that yeah. Like maybe yes, you'll stumble and fall in the river. river and nobody could help you. And he yes. said, you know, so guys, like, don't do that. I think he also said something like, you know, like I don't like don't make me lose my face, you know, like that kind of thing. Which right. uh, people yeah. could go like, oh my god, North Korea is so evil, they're gonna chop his face off. No, he meant like, don't make me look bad. Like it's gonna be, <laughs> you know, right. I need to control you guys face, a little like, bit. Yeah, you want yeah. to save face. Yes, yeah, you wanted right. to save you face and like, you know, uh, exactly, right. exactly. Because yes. he because he was very like cool with. It. He was cut. Kind of, I mean, he compared to the other two guys who were very polite but kind of like kept their distance like he was the one who would like kind of chop it up with us and like i remember the first night when we were in that microbrewery and we're like yo mr o like let's buy you a drink and like he had us buy him like four drinks or something and you know started talking then immediately he was like all right like here's the deal like tell me like what do americans really think about dprk like don't beat around the bush i want to know i want to know the real <laughs> truth and we were you know the, the company like preps you to like don't talk about like politics or like anything like that but here he was like kind of asking us like come on like tell me what americans really think and so we're like well i get it. it's probably okay to like talk if he's saying this shit so uh so I think I said something. I tried to be like you know, kind of very like uh, diplomatic and say, well, you know, Mr. O, I think like a lot of Americans, based on like what they see in the news, like they tend to think of like uh, North Korea as like a, a very um, kind of aggressive, like a country with a very aggressive posture, and they're kind of like afraid of of North Korea and like what you guys might do. And then I remember him going and kind of like a, a sort of semi drunk, like passionate monologue about like uh like how you know why the hell would like the u.s empire be like afraid of us like we're little and like you know like consider our perspective i think he brought up libya which had just happened like you know the year prior Mm -hmm. and he's like look at libya like they made a deal to give up all their you know uh nuclear weapons program and then like the u.s goes in and like kills the leader and like destroys the country so like what are we supposed to think about that like what we're supposed to sign a deal with you and like not have and meanwhile everybody that has nuclear weapons doesn't get in so like come on you know like we're not gonna and i think he even said something like you know the idea that we would ever nuke south korea is ridiculous like the fallout would just blow up north and like kill all of us too so like obviously we don't want that we're not gonna like try to do it on a whim but like you know it's it's tough streets out here and you got to defend yourself and i remember being like damn like i can't really like disagree with any of that like that's pretty uh Mm -hmm like reasonable um and i guess you know that was can't remember uh i think yeah we talked all kinds of like other stuff i mean i think he said at one yeah, point I like i remember i, I kind of like, like you guys i remember him saying that his uh his pin of the uh kim jong-il and uh kim il-sung was his second heart you know that he, yeah. would, he would wear he referred to it as a second heart yeah yeah that um, was the one kind of a uh, souvenir you were not allowed to buy i think you had, you could buy knockoffs in dandong right. across the border but they would not sell you a pin a heart pin 
for the two right. dear leaders because that was kind of almost like sacrilegious uh, for you right. to be wearing that. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, but then, I mean, you know, there were some other like, you know, uh, Westerners there. I remember one night we had a pretty interesting uh, hot conversation with some like uh, New Zealander guy. Maybe you remember oh, yeah, that better than real I do. Po- real, po- real politique. Yes. Yeah, real politique. Uh, real politique. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, I guess, like, he was sus. He, he had, like, lived in West Africa previously, and he loved the U.S. It was funny because he was from New Zealand, but he loved the U.S. empire. Mm-hmm. He had this amazing quote that was like, America is the only country in the world that can carry water to a fire. You know, uh, yeah, I remember 6, that. Thousand miles away, like, uh, like, um, Shut the fuck yeah, up, and, and like, yeah, he was talking about oh, that's real politique, mate. You know, like, uh, yeah, exactly. just over and over again, uh, he just kept talking yeah, about real politique. real politique. Yes, um, he was all about real politique, uh, and like, uh, he said that the ideological victory in the Vietnam War was won, so it was good, uh, and the invasion of Libya was good. He also said there was no oil in Libya. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, you know, very bizarre. Uh, when um, the suggestion that like there was any kind of petrol politics like involved in, in Libya, uh, he said that there was no oil in Libya. I remember um, when I, I tried to push back on something that he said, he's like, oh, I heard you talking about Lenin earlier, mate. I know what you're all about. Like, you know, yeah, exactly, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, there were some sus lords like kind of in the mix there. There were a lot of Chinese tourists, too, who obviously we kind of didn't have any like interaction with. But I guess it was a big thing like Chinese uh, tourists like going to the DPRK. Yeah, it was mostly and... Chinese tourists because it was close, you know. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. Was, so um, we were there. Um, yeah. But all in all, and, like, uh, I think really fun, uh, fun and exciting experience. And like, I think. Um, I think, like, you know, it's been an interesting thing to refer back to over the years, like, as more North Korean drama has kind of, like, popped off on and off, and also, like, the perception of it is, like, basically, like, 1984, like, realized, Mm -hmm. you know? I think I have a more nuanced, maybe, perspective, even when I was there, of kind of, like, uh, maybe that... Like, I mean, for one, everybody did seem, at least in the city, which would make sense, because they're... It's, like, it's kind of the, the most elite you know place and the country but like people did seem to be kind of like uh, in a general sense like pretty down with like the system that they had to be fair i mean i don't know like you know we did not like one thing that is like you know uh not to say that like all the like things that are said about uh the prk are true like uh you know but uh i don't think that um, what we saw was, like, really, uh, enough to make, like, on, like, by itself, like, a true, like, a, uh, judgment, because honestly, like, we weren't, like, allowed to talk or interact with any North Koreans aside from our own guides. That was, yes. like, one thing that really stood out. Like, I do remember, you know, uh, there, we, uh, we went to the subway. Oh, that yeah, was one yeah. Thing that, you know, the metro, which was very, a very nice metro, you know, on par with some of the metros you'd see in Moscow. Really nice, uh, although we yeah. we were only allowed to go one stop. Yeah. Uh, so, and know, I got on the wrong, a, I got, I remember I got on the wrong train by accident <laughs> and I ended up wow. alone on a car full of like, of, of Koreans. And afterwards, mm-hmm. like the guides came over like, Hey, what are you doing? Like, come on. Like, and I sort of, yeah. played, I think I kind of knew what I was doing, but like, I kind of wanted to do mm-hmm. it. And it was like, but yeah, you're only re- allowed to ride one stop and then you have to get off. And some people, yeah. you do notice like the older people, some older people would kind of like give you a little bit of a look. 
if you know yeah. depending on the generation but the young kids the young pioneers were always like waving at you and smiling and like laughing and like they were just right. like joyous and like i mean they're probably having a great time it was children's well, yeah, week i Right, it was just like you know the limits on like uh, you know our freedom of move like you know we weren't not that this is like n- you know not their prerogative to like limit the movements that travelers have especially from like countries that are like their avowed enemies but yeah. like uh, you know we didn't really get to interact with anybody other than our like I remember after the metro you know you kind of tried to like linger around us with the bus a little bit like because there were people coming out of the subway you know we were like amidst yep like people for the first time and they were like uh you know our guys were like come on like we gotta go it's raining and it was not uh, (laughs) remotely raining like it was not raining uh yeah Uh, but you know i think you're selling our other guys a little bit short because like uh you know our our other guys miss lee and miss kim definitely one of them was miss kim yeah uh they performed like uh you know uh my heart will go on for us uh they did a karaoke performance of my heart will go on it was Um, really beautiful (laughs) <laughs> yes, and they also told us uh, that, you know, uh, like, if the United States tried anything, like, you know, if the United States uh, oh, yeah. acted aggressively, uh, they were ready to everything. They were ready to um, everything. Exactly. The situation already became tense again nowadays. The situation uh, uh, between North and South, it is, it is very bad since the population took power. So, uh, we just sent them our They were ready to everything. Like, like, almost as soon as we were there, like, one of the first messages that we received was that they were ready to everything. Yeah. Which, fair Uh, enough. I mean, uh, I guess, yeah, they've been been ready to everything. And uh, they, you know, I I mean, I have to hand it to to my, uh, our our boy Kim Jong-un. Like, we we weren't sure really what to make of him. And it seemed like our guides actually didn't... uh, I remember right after we we visited the monument, the bronze statues, where they, you know, very gently encourage you... Yeah, they just directed Kim Jong-il. And, you know, they very gently kind of uh, encourage you to buy some flowers from a little flower stand there. So you can go up and lay flowers at the feet and then bow. So, so, you know, we're like, all right, we're going to do this. And I remember, like, when we were walking away after uh, Mr. O was... What do you think about uh, what do you think about Commander Kim Jong Un? And uh, again, it's like okay, loaded question, but like I'm like, well, you know, like I I think uh, I I think it's like an exciting opportunity. Like he's young, you know, he's like the like the first millennial world leader in a way. Um, and I, and I, I decided to like you know maybe test the waters a little bit, and I said you know I think it's really interesting uh, that he went to boarding school in Switzerland, like with a, people from a bunch of different countries. So like I think he might have a little bit of like an international perspective that could be you know helpful to like you know promoting uh, peace. And he was like, wait, what? And I'm like, yeah. oh yeah. He's like, wait, he went to boarding school in Switzerland. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, how do you know that? And I'm like, oh, like I read about, it. you know, like, uh, like, like he was, uh, it's like he hadn't like heard of that before. Um, so that was kind of an interesting thing of like, maybe they hadn't really kind of like, they're still kind of constructing, like, how are we really going to like kind of build the image of Kim Jong-un as kind of in like the right way. We don't, maybe don't want to like throw that information out there. Cause that sounds kind of like, ooh, like, you know, um, that, that's not a real, you know, uh, 
we're talking about the, the grandson of, of Kim Il-sung here, you know? So, like, we, yeah. we want to probably stress his, like, roots with, like, you know, in Korea and, like, all these other things. Uh, so I think, you know, that was interesting that there was kind of, like, this information. There was this, like, it was the only... I mean, it's the only country I've ever been to that didn't have advertisements. It didn't have billboards or anything. It had, like, it had, like political banners around, but, like, there was no... And there was no Coca-Cola, and there was no... I think you could, you maybe could get Marlboro cigarettes because Mr. O smoked like three packs of Marlboro Reds a day. But uh, they had their own actually like North Korean cigarettes, which I bought a few cartons of. And, uh, you know, that was like, it was like, that was really fascinating about it was like this one place where like neoliberalism and like U.S. imperialism was like not allowed and was like kept out yeah. of and like had its own mm-hmm. things, completely own things kind of going on. And uh, yeah, I have to I say, saw, like, like yeah. one Fanta, like the whole time that we were there, I think that there was one Fanta that I came across, but maybe I don't know. Like, That's us. Uh, that was a Nazi was like beverage. A... That was a Nazi beverage. No. Yeah. No. Fanta. Um, yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, but mm, for the most part, like, no. But... And uh, and also, I mean, last but not least, like uh, we were taken to the childhood home of Kim Il-sung and we were shown like yes. the childhood well and uh they i guess there's a tradition there in the dprk where you can take a drink from the the well of kim il-sung and it's supposed to Mm. give you like good luck you know and things like that and so some of our people didn't really want to do it because like you know just like it's just like water in a foreign country but uh you and i felt inspired that we should uh take uh Mm -hmm. that and as soon as we got back to shenyang uh i think the next day we both got like extremely bad dysentery (laughs) i was totally waylaid like i I wouldn't say it was definitely dysentery like you know like i think it was it was something it was something uh, on that level it was messed up uh, i started having i started hallucinating i had like weird dreams yeah no i had a dream that Um, like the our guides came and picked us up in shenyang we're like come on guys we got to see more monuments and i was like but wait like we left we left north korea like no no no, we're not done yet you got to come on and then it was just like we were on like a a monument tour forever and like you couldn't get off the bus like uh it was like i I had some real like weird like trippy uh things and we were like locked in our hotel for like two days like i feel like i saw protists in that water like as i was drinking it but uh yeah and like it was awful like i was like screaming uh yeah i uh yeah i remember like one of my clearest memories is like you smoking that cigarette like while uh you know i was like dying i couldn't like handle it because like you know uh like you know i just didn't want to like inhale like cigarette smoke at that time because i was like on the cusp of like you know death and uh like you know i was just like well at least the window's open and then like a like a, you know oh, a wasp. like a wasp i guess like flew you know and you're like oh a wasp like slammed the window shut and i was like oh my god like i was losing it like um oh, but, yeah good it was, times it was, good times uh yeah uh, it was not good times at all. Um, it was it was bad. Um, that was rough. That was rough to come back. Yeah, from. I think we had to take painful. some antibiotics after that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, our friends uh, came through and got us some antibiotics, but I was really hurting for like some saltines. You know, at the time I was definitely wanting uh, to smoke some weed too. Like you know, oh, I that was, would have uh, been definitely a yeah. little homesick at that moment. Like mm-hmm. get me some saltines. 
Yeah, um, yeah. So they, uh, they, know, they, yeah, they, yeah. They almost um, got us, but we escaped. Uh, no, just kidding. Um, yeah, exactly. Not we their fault. Escaped. Should yes. have not drank the water. It's not for us. Uh, uh, probably you know. shouldn't have done that. And I haven't uh, become president as uh, was predicted by the by the water. Although that might, you know. Oh yeah. Well, you laid you laid mess, flowers at the, the wreath of the statue, so yeah. you'll never be president. Yeah, exactly. I think that probably drinking uh, the water from the, from that well and whatever uh, boons that might have are probably ca- uh, countered out uh, by having done <laughs> that in terms of being, especially in terms of being the U.S. president. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, okay. Um, I'm eligibly president of it all. But, of yeah. course, yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, so. Okay, so that's that's you know that's a that's a good I think summary of uh, our experience in DPRK. <laughs> try to make a good time here um this is a kind of tangentially uh, still on the korean peninsula but number four from bad back yes. jack um uh wrote earlier in the grotto dr poshloss mentioned having a friend well versed in south korea affairs i posted a comment earlier relating to the wild story about two generations of presidents mixed up with two generations of cult leaders culminating in a national scandal with hundreds of thousands if not more people in the streets protesting and then there's the seawall uh, disaster uh, which left hundreds of school kids drowned on the anniversary of the cult founder's death and a lot of sticky questions i would love to hear yours and uh, your friend's opinion on this thanks um okay uh have you heard are you familiar with the story about president park yes uh yes i remember well there was the hub in 2016 and also you know it goes back like even further because like park uh who was president in 2016 who then went to prison for like 20 years uh on like corruption charges Mm -hmm. uh a lot of the substance of which was her uh involvement with basically like a sort of rasputin type figure mm-hmm. um who was like a uh what was her name it was Choi uh something uh choi but, uh, choi soon sil mm-hmm. yeah she i guess was the daughter of uh, uh someone who had been like sort of a, a korean rasputin 
uh, who had like a, a lot of outsized influence on uh, the political uh, machine. And uh, and Korea. President Park's father, uh, General Park, who like yes. ran the country, I think, I believe in the 70s, right? Uh, under a military dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Yes, pretty much. Yeah, he was assassinated by mm-hmm. uh, uh, the leader of the sort of the ar- the armed forces in, in Korea, and I think one of the reasons why, uh, uh, according to the assassin, who was uh, Kim Jae Gu, the director of the KCIA, oh, okay. um, and his security chief, um, one of the reasons was the the outsized influence that. Uh, uh, the father of uh, Choi Sun Seal, who what was uh, his name? I guess it was the uh, the original Tae-min. leader, uh, Choi uh, Tae Min. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and yeah, I, so I just interesting. And there's also been like, there's also been some cult stuff around COVID. Like apparently, a, like a huge proportion of their COVID cases are attributed to like members of cults. There's this really? a huge phenomenon in South Korea where like cults are a gigantic part of society and like a yeah. huge influence on politics. Well, I mean, uh, and, and also yes. maybe the biggest uh, uh, cult culture of them all, K-pop, I think definitely feeds into um, that to a certain degree. Course, I mean, the yes. idea of stands yes. and like- uh, The ultimate cult. Uh, yeah, yes. yeah. Um, and you know, I think right. there, there's been uh, there's been all kinds of speculation on K-pop because K-pop's like a very like top-down controlled uh, version of a music industry, which drew a lot of inspiration from the U.S. music industry. But uh, it's it's like in heavily managed and like there's a lot of corruption, kind of abuse and control of like talent and like all kinds of shady things going on. But it's amazing how they built this like machine that is really like you know uh taken uh, a, a pretty high position in terms of like world music yes that's true i think it's also interesting to consider uh you know like whether uh how much this is like a unique i mean definitely in certain ways like all things are uh you know within a given culture have like certain idiosyncrasies and distinct characteristics but i wonder like how much like uh you know perhaps like there is an influence of like these sort of religious movements obviously not in the same way but i think that we kind of discuss on the show how like uh you know then uh even though uh it's more it's been more visible and especially in recent years in south korea maybe uh this aspect of these sort of mystical organizations having like a profound political influence mm-hmm. uh maybe uh you know some uh, ascribing that solely to this sort of other you know is uh an instance of that of that projection that uh, we've often talked about. Uh, oh, for sure, for sure. I I will say that. Well. Yeah, yeah, I will say yeah. that. Like when this uh, President Park kind of um, shaman scandal kind of broke out a few years ago, I did appreciate it in the sense of if anybody wants to say that there's no. There's absolutely no foundation to the claim that there's like a connection between like secret societies and cults and like esoteric kind of orders and like the highest echelons of political power. Like this is a perfect case study of how it is not controversial, the facts of this case in terms of the fact that she, you know, had this deep relationship and all this financial chicanery going on and all these bizarre beliefs so if it's like you know for anybody that thinks oh like all those hooded guys at bohemian grove like they're just doing a little summer camp 
ritual. It's like not, well, I mean, here's one example where somebody took it very seriously. And her father, a general, a military, a right-wing military dictator and U.S. puppet, uh, it should be added, also took it quite seriously. And then, you know, you could throw in, like, the Moonies and that whole thing. Like, that, that was also one that was, like, very politically plugged in in both South Korea and the U.S. You know, there's that Koreagate scandal in the 70s where they're, like, bribing members of Congress. So, like, I think there is much more entanglement. There is an entanglement going on that we talk about all the time in a variety of, like, different countries and historical periods. But it, it's something that is kind of, like, it's more of a constant than kind of the mainstream is willing to admit. And I, I think it yes. didn't get a lot of coverage in America as like, like they, they definitely, sh- I definitely saw stuff on like CNN that was like, they're, they're marching in the streets to like throw out this president, but like they never mentioned like, because she's in like a weird cult and like, et cetera, et cetera. Like they always left that part well, yeah, out. Yeah. That was like a sort of an aspect of the corruption angle. Like, you know what they materially did, like in many ways, like the crimes or like influence peddling, like the way that this uh, cult would extort favors and so, or, you know, this, in- this individual the shaman, like first the father and then. And then the daughter uh, across these two uh, presidents, um, you know, over these like it's you know crazy this the tumultuous uh, history of this political dynasty. You know, the mother of uh, uh, the former president Park was uh, who was uh, you know uh, removed from office in twenty sixteen. She was also assassinated in a failed assassination attempt, on, or killed in a failed assassination attempt. I guess she wasn't assassinated if it you know was uh, failed on her yeah. husband's life. But anyway, yeah, she was killed in an assassination attempt uh on her on her husband uh and there was a later successful one by his own security chief in 1979 as we mentioned uh yeah and then she went on to become the president you know very uh you know uh tumultuous uh, political history of that family which is Definitely. all very much embroiled with the generations of this cult um uh but uh, i wonder yeah, okay uh, just just to throw in here just because we just talked about the dprk i do wonder uh, to what extent uh, the like high activity of spiritualist cults and also like mass entertainment kind of cults like K-pop uh, are created as a kind of um, an answer to the, uh, for lack of a better term, cult of personality around the Kim family and well, the DPRK, I think, uh, like building an alter, well, like a, a counter, a, a counter mechanism to like they need something to uh basically create a sense of social cohesion and shared purpose etc etc and so it's like they need something to fill that void lest south korea be kind of like uh atomized and more you know spun off in different kind of tendencies and directions like you need something highly symbolic and uh almost like para-religious for the people to uh focus their energies around well, I think that definitely, like, there's a dialectic between, like, the two things that you mentioned, and, like, I think that maybe, you know, we mentioned Otto Warmbier, uh, mm-hmm. who had, like, an evangelical background. I think that partially, like, perhaps, you know, or even a missionary background, if I recall correctly, mm-hmm. I think that maybe part of the reason uh, for his treatment uh, might have had to do with him, like, mentioning certain things, and I think that they're, you know, uh, uh, maybe because of the incredible power and like the political control that's sometimes exercised by these religious organizations in South Korea, that might be part of the reason why North Korea is particularly vigilant about that. Um, mm, you know, yeah. about like uh, things like uh, religious movements or uh, evangelical Christianity or anything like that. Yeah, it takes on and, a different light uh, when you thing, look at you know, some of yeah. the stuff's going on in the Republic of Korea, you know? 
And yeah, and also I think North Korea, you know, they're also very mindful of, uh, you know, the uh, sort of uh, to differentiate their sort of uh, popular or mass culture from the South Korean popular culture. You mm-hmm. know, it's not good to sound like a South Korean pop singer to be like a North Korean singer. You know, you want to have like a more classical voice suited for a performance of Sea of Blood uh, or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you don't want to be like uh, one of the members of, of Blackpink, uh, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, I think that <laughs> um, there's definitely like uh, some counter uh, definition or some uh, oppositional self-definition uh, going on. But yeah, I yeah. think that, uh, yeah, I mean, these like, uh, you know, they're both ultimately like koreans Mm -hmm. uh i mean you can say that about a lot of different cultures not to like you know to claim about something that i really like i'm not an expert in by any means but uh you know one like uh their separation isn't really historically speaking that old and so one can assume that like certain uh cultural trends insofar as most of them have like roots you know Mm -hmm. you can see like uh, that they would be uh observable like on both sides of the border there wouldn't be such a dramatic transformation or at least there would be sort of a sensitivity to them and that they would have a complex relationship like between them so yeah say, for like, sure oh, how odd that like south korea like in south korea cults and like our religious movements have you know this uh incredible like outsides influence like mm-hmm. uh in, in politics and this you know very prominent uh, role uh, in the sort of political structure and have been very like have been embroiled in these very highly publicized trials and mass protests and the removal of this president and, yep. and uh, even these uh, to an extent these assassinations to then that obviously has to be seen in the broader context of like South Korea's geopolitical situation both like vis-a-vis North Korea and vis-a-vis like its position as like a U.S. ally etc. Yeah, um, yeah for sure. You know that would be my thought. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. I, I just want to uh, mention real quick because uh they brought up here the the sewol i hope i'm saying that right s-e-w-o-l yeah, disaster and right. uh yeah. they linked to a like uh, a korean message board and i guess like what they're referring to is uh there has been much speculation about the missing seven hours where president park's whereabouts were completely unknown for seven hours in 2014 during the sewol ferry disaster rumors are now running rampant that park gun was attending a memorial shamanistic ritual for Ch- uh, for Choi Tae Min, who passed away 20 years ago on the day of the ferry disaster. The more lurid version of the rumor says that Park's government actually sank the seawall to offer human sacrifice for the dead cult leader. As ridiculous, uh, wow. yeah, yeah. So that that that's the mass mass ritual. Basically, speculation was running wild, I guess, in Korea. Right. Uh, yeah. Back so in that's kind of like the 9/11 as mass ritual version of the more conventional. St- story of like you know uh the 9-11 commission report version which is that it was just gross incompetence uh-huh, uh, they were exactly in. so um, i guess the yeah there's the sort of uh same spectrum of belief about the ferry in terms of like was it you know just gross incompetence was the government not responsible at all and it was like due to you know a freak accident or something or the incompetence of the captain uh, you know, how much is the government culpable? Like, did they practically do it or did they actually do it as a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, a sacrifice? Um, yes. Yeah, yeah uh, it's very hmm, interesting. I would like to maybe circle back uh, to, like, the particular kind of, like, what were the particular beliefs of that cult, you know, one day. Uh, maybe we could uh, dive into um, uh, that. Maybe I could, re- I could, I could talk to uh, the person I know who's, like, very, very knowledgeable about uh kind of korean history and politics um 
and uh, maybe uh, get their get their two cents on like what was the most important thing to focus on. So uh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's that. Um, yeah, I think we can definitely. We can... Yeah, I think this definitely might be worth like a, an episode down the line. There's definitely some interesting stuff uh, to to go into uh, at, at at greater length. But yeah, we'll uh, we'll just say uh, you know bookmark that, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, we will. Uh, definitely devote some time to it, but yeah. No, I think it's a very straight path. Yeah, like feet together. Oh, I will. Oh, God. You truly can never be president. You're never going to be president. You will never hold elected office. Of any kind. I will never even be a meager state senator. And then make a Then you can make a picture. We are very highly appreciated for your mind. You want to read that? Sure, yeah. I'm not sure if this has been covered, says Ossifikans, but what do you think about True Detective Season 1 and how it's arguably the most accurate representation of ritual abuse and cover-ups in mainstream media? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Well, I wonder, like, I guess in a way, like, it's, uh, you know, like, uh, full-length narrative, like, serialized TV, which I guess uh, people feel is sort of a more powerful medium like kind of where you know you can tell a story over a longer period of time and uh the true detective season one was like uh narratively well wrought in a way Mm -hmm. uh in that you know the chronological sort of jumping around and the performances by the lead actors uh were very good i mean really though like uh i mean i don't know maybe it is the best uh or the, I don't know, most accurate representation. I'm not sure, but there are obviously many representations of things like this. I think this is, like, kind of part and parcel of, like, the discussion of them is that they're often, like, represented in the media in some form. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you got Eyes Wide Shut. Um, I want to yeah. say there was a movie with, like, Martin Sheen from 1989. I want to say it was called, like, The Believers, but that was about, like, a elite satanic cult. Um uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The believers kind of was about. It was more Santeria. Um, okay, okay. With, uh, the, yeah, that movie. But it was a similar thing where they do these sacrifices for power, and they were elite figures or powerful people. I mean, Rosemary's Baby, like, yep. really kind of uh, had the same sort of thing. I think it, I don't know if that had the same sort of political angle uh, so much. Like, uh, but I think that there there was kind of that thing where you know with a doctor you can't trust a doctor you know he's on it there's still the sort of sense that like these authority figures are 
involved like uh you know and this is sort of this uh definitely like a mcmartin type of vibe you could see in, in rosemary's yeah. baby yeah definitely um, i know, mean though i guess not the abuse of children per se but there definitely are you know uh depictions of that and the, the sacrifice of of babies and and things like that to, to satan you know that's kind of an old yeah uh idea um but you know yeah i mean uh, i i think it's in, it's interesting to consider true detective because like i i think i was a pretty big fan of it I, I i was pretty kind of excited by it when it came out in 2014 and uh like i don't know i remember uh kind of tracking down the uh, the script and also like the sort of like the pitch bible for it that nick pizzolato wrote and kind of took out to like sell it to people and uh it was it was it was like a pretty tight script at least the first episode was and like it was painting in these like really dark colors uh and it it touched on certain things that felt like they hadn't really been touched on in a in a deeper way in a while and actually one thing that's interesting about nick pizzolato um and this actually popped up in like season three of true detective but he mentioned it like on twitter when season one came out i remember he did something somebody asked him about like uh is this based on like something real and he tweeted out something like look up like omaha child sex ring 1980s or something like google that like he basically told him to google the franklin scandal and then actually there was like an explicit reference in season three to the larry king scandal because i think it was the the uh mahershal ali's wife uh that character was like doing research on the internet and she came across like all these articles about like larry king and like omaha like elite sex abuse stuff and like the, it clicks through the homosexual prostitution ring ensnares bush reagan white house like that old article from like the washington times like all those kind of iconic like images of you know uh franklin scandal that you see everywhere um were like pretty prominently flashed on the screen of course the thing is like season three uh actually did a kind of like a swerve and uh not to you know spoil it or whatever but uh it ended up kind of like not being like an elite satanic cult the first one definitely uh rides with it kind of to the end there's like that videotape that's allegedly of like you know elites like uh sacrificing a child they never show like what's on it but it's kind of like you know the reactions of the people that are shown it it's like it must be horrible uh and all that stuff um I think we mentioned, like, before we started recording, like, I think we both were, like, a little bit let down by, like, the ending of it. Um, I feel like it kind of, like, didn't fully mm, yeah, stick well, the landing. It was just, like, we got our man, you know? I mean, in a way, that, like, kind of makes sense where, like, uh, yeah, it's sort of, like, a lot of the time, like, in some way, maybe realistic that, like, when people go after these things, like, they don't, uh, you know, you don't get everybody. Uh, actually, uh, <laughs> achieve their objective, but we they didn't really properly try. Like they got one guy and then they kind of like gave up, which was kind of like a disappointing aspect. And yeah, one was kind of maybe hoping for more, and yeah. like it really ended on kind of like a saccharine note. You know, like I guess I like you know uh, the universal battle between light and dark. You know, most people can get on board with that. It's kind of like the fundamental theme in a lot of fiction and a lot of like. Uh, you know even like philosophy and uh you know uh, uh, yeah. human reflection on life but like you know it's kind of trite like the way that it ended uh it felt like yeah, a little yeah, yeah a bit cop outy um like no pun intended um you know and i think yeah. that so it's like i know that he's aware of things like the franklin scandal and things of this like nature because he's like mentioned it before uh from the very beginning like when he wrote this show and if it's like, almost like if you map 
the real Franklin scandal on to True Detective season one. It's like it ends when like they they like uh, uh, they confront and like kill Rusty Nelson and they're like, all right, we're done. You know what I mean? It's like that kind of. It's yeah. like they didn't even get Larry King. They just got like one of the henchmen basically for this thing. Right. And so it's like mm. it, it the end but then like the ending doesn't feel as unresolved as it actually is and it's kind of just more about their personal character arcs and like coming to terms with like the world yeah, it's or whatever. Mostly like the backdrop for like a detective story. You know, it's interesting because like one of the things that I mean, I actually am a really big fan of Robert W. Chambers' collection, The King in Yellow, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the story repair reputations, which I feel like I might have mentioned on the podcast before. But, I mean, of course, it was a very famous book, probably because of its influence on Lovecraft. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that Lovecraft even mentions, like, Carcosa and, yeah. uh, you know, a phrase which is used in, in this book. It's not, like, what you would think, like, when you think of, like, Lovecraft stories. Like, it's uh, very unique. And, like, I, you know, I'm a fan of his other writings as well, like uh, the story of the Purple Emperor um, and... Uh, I believe there's a sequel to that, which I, th- I think might be called the, the Black Priest or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I might be wrong. But anyway, uh, there, you'll be able to find it easily if you look up uh, the Purple Emperor and its sequel or just the works of Chambers uh, in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, uh, he's a very interesting writer. Uh, he's written many interesting stories. Uh, the White Shadows is another one. But uh, yeah, I just felt like, you know, that isn't. That was that's like tacky to me and like lame. Like when people just kind of like talk, like you know, or like oh Cthulhu and like these stories. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know. Maybe I'm judging it unfairly because it was a trendsetter in a way, and now I'm reflecting yeah. on it uh, through like the sort of uh, deluge of Lovecraft stuff, like that sort of uh, ensued afterwards. Mm-hmm. Not that I haven't appreciated that stuff. You know, I like the Colorado Space movie and things like that. Although that is a proper like Lovecraft adaptation, so in that case you know it does and they don't do the same sort of name dropping thing where it's just like if you hear some of these names you just cringe you're not like your a job, love you know? lovecraft like, country like oh it must be shagaths like they're out there in the forest right now yeah, like, you gotta run away yeah, from exactly. them like ugh, okay like, like uh you know <sighs> like Yogg-Sothoth, who's that like the goat with a thousand young like Oh, you know, like, uh, yeah, yeah. I like, think I, I'm uh, glad that yeah, he... and I just feel like the whole thing of that, like, well, why not? If it's gonna be like, you know, if it's gonna be realistic, like that actually isn't a realistic aspect because these people who are involved in these cults, they don't worship the king in yellow. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't worship Cthulhu. Like, if you're gonna represent this accurately. Uh, yeah, that's not a realistic aspect. I, I, I think he was doing um, some dabbling. I'm kind of glad he didn't go like full Cthulhu at the end of it and make it like basically Lovecraft Country detective like oh, yeah, story, you sure. know? No, no, um, no. Yeah, um, but also I, I do want to bring up like one uh, that probably his most maligned season, season two, has a lot of really interesting elements in it. It's just like not very well executed and it's like kind of a total mess. Um, and so but i think it's still if you're kind of if you you know kind of vibe with like season one and you 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 want to you know give it a try i would say maybe check it out the most interesting thing i think it's david morse who plays the father of one of the main characters in season two and he's basically like a ridiculous kind of like boomer new age guru who basically lives at the esalen institute like there's a whole subplot okay. in it about oh, the right. esalen institute yeah. yeah and it, it also the first episode of true detective season one but uh, season two that is but i couldn't 
it, it's like overloaded i think they they produced it like too fast they should have given him like two years to like uh, work on it like they threw out all the scripts he fired his writer's room and then like went back and hurriedly like wrote every episode by himself like he did with the first season but it was like rushed and then uh carrie fukunaga his director like uh, fell off the project and so you know it was like uh, it was just the typical like hollywood kind of like giving somebody who just blew up like too much power but also like pressuring him to like pump out another big hit and then like the addition of vince vaughn is kind of like didn't really work but there is a lot of element there's like bohemian grove elements there's like kind of epstein like escort like sex party kind of things uh happening there's um a lot of threads with like the corruption of um I think it's called Vinci is what he calls it, but it's basically Commerce, California, which is right near downtown LA, which is a kind of fascinating. It's like a town that like almost like nobody like lives in, but it's just all like factories and warehouses and stuff. So like, uh, you know, the, the idea there is that like, I guess there's like a, you know, Colin Farrell plays his corrupt cop who's like really just a cutout for like all these corrupt like mafia interests that are like running stuff through commerce. And like the government is totally captured by, uh, you know, some shady, like, uh, political... He kind of blended together a few, like, L.A. area kind of a municipal government scandals into that. And I think there there was a whole plot around, like, building a high-speed train. So he even had, like, trains in there. Like, a little LaRouche element. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. it was all about, like, buying up land in the central... Like, scamming, like, land deals in, like, the Central Valley to buy the land for, like, the new high-speed train. And then there was, like, you know, uh, prostitution, blackmail kind of thing going on at like bohemian grove and like people were getting bumped off and like there was like a lot of like stuff that was like oh okay and then there was like the esalen fucking institute like stuff kind of happening and so there's like there were a lot of ingredients that were interesting but like man like you know biting off california for season two that that's a big bite that you're taking there's a lot going on in california so like i feel like it just it, it didn't quite like and it, and it, it kind of slides into just being like a generic cop show as a result because it's like so overloaded with shit um but i still think it might be intriguing to check out uh, i feel like season three was like more measured and like well constructed uh story-wise but it did have a little bit of a cop out at the end where it was like oh head fake like it's not a satanic murder cult it's actually just like you know one crazy person doing something and and you know so i i would hope well, one day yeah, he's able to like really solves the problem well you know what but that's what i was going to kind of say about true detective season one is that ultimately what it is is like a very traditional like again they're sort of like uh maybe not for television like but in terms of you know it's a very traditional detective story like with a certain gloss of like uh you know lovecraftian weirdness mm-hmm. but ultimately it's like you know their struggles with their wives or interpersonal yep. dynamic mm-hmm. and then there's sort of this uh you know uh ultimately pretty thin you know not to like demean it too much but like this kind of thin like philosophical arc where he goes from like spouting this like very adolescent kind of thomas Ligotti derivative pessimism mm-hmm. to uh you know embracing the struggle of light versus dark which like to me is like a little bit like uh well, you know, again, like I said, like, uh, d- struggling against darkness, like, in the sense of evil is good, but, uh, you know, I wonder if there's almost something, like, somehow, like, subversive, not in the sense of, like, subversive storytelling, but, like, subversive of the goal of, like, the, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's like something to, like, you know, uh, juke it out into this 
thing of like it's a universal battle between light and darkness in a very vague and abstract way uh i don't know and like just like uh, i i'm like whatever i find like yeah. some of the the stuff that a lot of people responded to that they thought was like so cool uh like the thomas Legati ripoff stuff time like, is a uh, flat circle you know, to not be s- time is yeah exactly like lame like a little bit lame but you know uh I, I also like uh, something that like will I'll never be able to really isolate True Detective from that amazing article about Nick Pizzolatto, uh, <laughs> the leather like, jacket uh, motorcycle in, article, in the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah, I have to re- uh, reinvent myself every day. Yeah, um, I want to find it. Was it in Vanity Fair? Uh, yeah, I think no, it was Vanity. Wasn't... I think it was Vanity Fair. Uh, yeah, he would say things um, like sometimes like he gets so raw when he's like working on uh, he's writing out a script that like he'll go to a restaurant and he'll order like a rare steak and then he'll just like when it comes he'll just look at it and just like burst into tears and start crying. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's the one like, that has like, these amazing like uh, shots of him like uh you know wearing a leather jacket like in front uh-huh. of a motorcycle and like you know uh yeah it's uh i, I you uh, know in a way yeah. i feel like he was one of the i feel like true detective uh you know on the one hand it, it kind of felt innovative but it was also kind of like the last of something i think it was the last of a certain i was talking about this with somebody the other day like i i think in a way it was the last of a certain kind of like premium television in the so-called golden age of TV. Um, and yeah, a lot of people sort of, yeah, yeah, because it was right before it was produced right as Netflix started pumping out original content with house of cards. And like that eventually over the next five years, like led to this explosion of content that I, I can't help, but like shaking the feeling that there's like an inherent soullessness in even a lot of like the premium TV content that has been created by Amazon or Apple or Netflix or Hulu, etc., and I don't know, even HBO hasn't been impervious to it. Like it's almost getting like a, it infected with like uh, this kind of thing uh, where, like I don't know anymore. It's like it just feels like it, it has uh, really not been. It's been a gilded age of TV, definitely for I'd say the last like five years. It's like an incredibly gilded yeah. age of TV. It's not uh, like... actually good. Like so much of it is just it's not like bad. They've raised they pumped a bunch of money into it. They got like talented people to shoot it and make it look like fancy, like a movie. And they get like increasingly A-list actors to come and act in it. And all that stuff is there. But there's like some kind of creative frisson like missing uh, the, from it. And uh, Pizzolatto, for all of his like picadillos and like eccentricities was like one of these like breakout showrunners that was gonna like have a vision and like a pizzolato show is gonna be a specific kind of show and i feel like there aren't too many people that like have really been able to establish themselves in that way and like tv in the last like five years despite this explosion in quote-unquote premium tv does that make sense yeah, I definitely think so. And I think, like, you know, uh, for what it's worth, like, Nick Pizzolatto uh, was, like, you know, like a creative writer, you know, with a background in doing that kind of, like, mystery fiction. Yeah. Who had, like, sort of uh, an auteur take, you know, whereas there definitely became, like, a premium aesthetic that uh, people then just tried to replicate, like, mm-hmm. in an assembly line type way. Yeah. Uh, and that's, like, what, you know, we where. Yeah, there's a qu- there's a certain aspect to premium TV where someone is empowered 
people who for whatever reason like had like a distinct vision for something that they wanted to accomplish but the number of people who are willing to do that or who position themselves in that way like kind of uh doesn't meet for whatever reason the demand for tv shows and like also like i, I don't think that like the you know some of the people who might have like an uh, an inspiring interesting idea in terms of tv might be like too dangerous or you know just too much for what you know it has to ultimately exactly detective even though like it's from someone who definitely had a certain vision for something that people would respond to it, it works in very established genre conventions like yes. extremely conventional at the end of the day uh you know like uh so for I think sure that, for that, sure like uh, <laughs> it like stars aligned in that way um whereas most of the time like uh you're you're not gonna get uh something like that and the sort of just premium vibe where you get things like halt and catch fire or whatever or like you know <laughs> yeah uh, yeah there's this amazing show i found on amazon which ran for one season called good girls revolt oh which yeah is like, yeah uh very similar to another show that uh we watched together like if one marathon like in la uh called vinyl oh that was yeah on they spent like tons and tons of money on and yes crashed and burned oh. uh, like, if you want a good hate watch canceled. uh if and, you want a good like yeah. schadenfreude watch like definitely check out vinyl it, it sucks so much and it's so like reaching and grasping and uh the show good girls revolt was the same thing it was set at like a newspaper you know and in the first episode they had to report on the the altamont uh concert and it's oh, like yeah. this forced sort of thing where they're trying to be mad men you know uh -huh. and they're like be like like you know they have the sort of don draper sort of figure who like is shaping the narrative of of the 70s you know because mm -hmm. it's set a, a little bit like, you know it's like yeah. picking up where men almost yeah uh and he's like it's almost like you know uh, if you did drugs, that made you a good person, but n something has changed now. Something is, you know, like, it's like this <laughs> ultimate situation. Wow. Has tr you know, uh, it's almost like something is, is ending uh, in terms of the summer of, of love. You know, it's like very, like... It's uh, like being there, know, watching like, history uh, happen. Uh, wow, yeah, very compelling. Yeah, Isn't Gloria like, uh, Steinem whereas, like a you know, girl boss character in that? I think that um, it's oh my god, what's her name? Oh, Nora Ephron is like oh, a sort okay. of recurring character okay, um, yeah. on the show. Yeah, um, although Gloria Steinem, I, I don't know if she appears, but uh, yeah, but it's kind of like you can see that's like the essence of like the sort of uh, quote unquote golden age of television, where there were a couple of things that sort of announced this uh, thing that were really ultimately. What's interesting is that they really were ultimately. Uh, in a way, conventional stories exploring the inner turmoil of middle-class white men. Uh, yeah, like yeah, Walter no, white, I, <clears throat> Tony Soprano. Uh, Don Draper. Yeah, Tony Soprano. and Even the, the cops in The Wire. Protagonist. Yeah, McNulty. Yep. Um, I guess he's more working class, but yeah. he's still very much the hero of The Wire, and he has like sort of domestic problems, and it's all about, you know, about his drive to solve these cases and do good police work and like yep. uh you know he can't settle down uh like his pathos is very much driving of a lot of the sort of uh you know character driven plot of the, of the wire uh mm -hmm. and uh so it's yeah it's an interesting aspect of that where and then sort of there's been multiple attempts to kind of replicate those molds basically like mm -hmm. the molds cast by those shows without really trying to invent something new uh you know uh people have uh kind of uh just tried to do something like that and yeah. like real creativity has not really not that i like can think of uh 
you know, nothing like comes to mind that yeah. like, has really broken <laughs> the mold set like during that time. Well, uh, I even feel like we're back to a point now where like, and, and I had like certain things with Mad Men, especially in the later seasons, but like, I feel like Mad Men, like actual, like that kind of script and like the, its perspective that it had would be considered kind of like too far out and like not what people would want if they were shopping it around yeah. today. Like it, it's mm-hmm. like too yeah. idiosyncratic it in have certain ways. In it. Yeah, yeah. Or it's it not like, or it's not about like it. it has these like little passing cameos with like maybe a, a famous person you'd recognize, but it's like not that type of show where it's like vinyl. It's like every five seconds, it's like David Bowie, like CGI David Bowie pops up, like oh hey Richie, like how's the record label going? Yeah, you know? <laughs> it's like totally fucking exploitative and ridiculous, and just like like dropping these fucking uh, famous CGI yeah, people like, into the story all the time yeah. and like that's really like yeah. a big nostalgia yeah, approach one where he met elvis and he was yeah. like come do a record with the nasty boys and elvis was like thinking about it but like his evil manager like yeah colonel tom parker to. would yeah. let him uh that at least was accurate yeah. uh but like we definitely need to do this us elvis episode but yeah yeah, uh, yeah. um Ricky finestra would, would be a good guess for that one but yeah um, yeah. But yeah but uh, but like yeah we we have had a weird i think it's kind of like a a a, a a, a quiet crisis moment in like television production where I feel like they're they're they've really like not they're I, I think I can confidently say like they're not kind of like making it better uh, at the moment like we're not progressing mm-hmm. we're like kind of like drowning in content that is increasingly like mediocre in the literal sense of like it's trending towards some yeah. kind of median and like there's not much like maybe with certain like half hour sort of experimental like more low budget comedies but like you're already Where, boxed yeah. in with that format yeah. so like in terms of drama i feel like, like drama has become deeply deeply predictable we should se- we should segue just because like we're okay. going down yeah, like, we're yeah. becoming Brett Easton Alice's podcast and not like you know uh, <laughs> okay, talking okay. about like uh, the state of the movies. Things. But yeah, I do. But one yeah, one last thing. Uh, it's dead. It's over. That, like, it's are, over. You can't be a writer are, like, anymore. Significant. <laughs> it's like- yeah what, <laughs> what are the well yeah what are the most significant like you know and the most uh, you know celebrated TV shows of the uh last like true detective definitely was one and i think that that did win like a lot of awards and stuff and definitely got a lot of acclaim and a lot of like treatment uh you know uh, as you can see and and the, the this is the hollywood reporter actually was the one that did um the the write-up on the oh, okay but okay. uh you know uh and the cover story the new disruptors yeah uh yes um but where are but, they uh, now yeah, what, there, there's no new disruptor nobody's uh, disrupting shit anymore uh yeah well i mean watchmen was probably the most which is just like again like superhero and like shitty and that's like an interesting example like kind of you know not to uh you know uh say that this is and i guess that maybe i don't know maybe the main character in watchmen like had but it was interesting because like on one hand watchmen is supposed to kind of be empowering and like Mm -hmm. uh you know uh, uh i think it was kind of designed to uh, make amends on behalf of the creator for like personal guilt that he had mm-hmm. and so as a result like obviously the character played by regina king like can't really be like this sort of deeply flawed uh individual and i guess maybe the protagonist of uh true detective i guess uh you know uh woody harrelson's character and uh definitely also uh you know they ultimately were knights noble knights uh as i think there is kind mm-hmm. of like a uh you know, a sort of wish fulfillment or sort of heroic aspect to all these uh, men, but they're they're anti-heroes. You know, they're yeah. 
they're flawed and like their flaws are part of where like the great drama comes from but like you know if you're trying to do this sort of thing where it's designed almost to be this easy form of like repentance for something like uh, by this industry that you know doesn't actually reflect like in any practical way the values that it espouses then yeah. like that kind of thing like doesn't really you know if you want to have like a black female lead on the show that's like run all by white people like then it's not going to be this probing analysis of like this you know flaws or this you know sort of uh the failure of the figure of don draper just because for yeah. one the people don't know anything and to be able to write about this maybe they have like staff writers of color who can do something like you know on certain they do on, on watchmen they but, did uh you know. but even that is like a fraught sure kind of relationship be, of like you know, you know yeah. like maybe there's and a also, tell me like, what i want to hear about like this it. weird thing about superheroes like the plot is like you know just mired and like all this but like you know it's just yeah. Well, yeah. No, uh, we've gone uh, from an age like, of you know, anti-heroes to, mind, like to heroes. Shondaverse stuff, like Olivia Pope, and how, like you know, yeah. which of course you know she is a black a female showrunner. So like you know the boat like the who come to mind is like black female heroes who are like anti-heroes who have like these complex personas, which people do respond to, like how to get away with murder and oh, like for sure. uh, you know yeah scandal. Olivia Pope yeah like, yeah the, you know those are people really come to mind because like and you can I'd see the difference between something that's made up by like Damon Lindelof because he feels bad about the uh, tenant he's coats article that he read versus like <laughs> someone who like is trying to you know do like yeah uh, like shonda's not afraid like, to like you know paint in some kind of gray colors uh, uh moral gray colors mm-hmm. and stuff like that and it's much more interesting as a result um yeah yeah yes definitely i, would I, I think even you know what i I, th- I would even say uh there are a few things that i've kind of like liked over the last five years and like while some of his stuff i think is like atrocious i think ryan murphy's uh the assassination of gianni versace was another kind of example of that where i think like there was a certain way where i think like as a as a gay man telling a story that you know was basically about a bunch of gay characters and a gay serial killer who was like an absolute psychopath and is like not somebody you can turn and really into a good guy uh he was able to do that kind of very masterfully and it was like really fa- I thought it was really really good like maybe the best thing he's ever done and I think like he but he was free to like really uh, like play around with that character's portrayal and like not shy away from like the kind of scary parts of it but also like the tragic parts of his character you know it's like stuff like that so I think like yeah like putting da- the Damon Lindelofs those types of people in charge of like I don't know, diversifying Hollywood seems like, like just actually diversify it. Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like if you're going to do those types of stories, just like get people in charge of it who are like, you know, don't have this like scared, like rich white, like liberal fucking complex going on. uh, But also like a little bit of a knowledge that they're going to get like a big pat on the back. They're going to get rewards. They're going to get work. They're going to get clout from like basically truly do that would require like institutional change. Uh huh. Like, yes. That would like not actually happen. Like you know, it's one thing to like hire, but then there's a the question of like, okay, well, who's hiring? Like the same people who have been in charge. Like that's the problem. You know. So, and I think that's part of the reason why, like you know, to go bring back to perspective, like if you really want something that's gonna like treat these issues, like it's not gonna probably come out of like uh, Hollywood because it would be like a self indictment and like require like a massive. <laughs> Uh, re-examination of like some of uh, this like 
the nature of Hollywood as an institution, I think. Sure, uh, sure, so, yeah, yeah. Like, big big uh, questions and, there, yeah. uh, <laughs> basically, to consider, because they have a monopoly on, yeah. like, high-scale film production, uh, not just a literal one, but, like, a psychological monopoly. People feel like they kind of, like, can't make movies. It, it's worse than music, in a way, because people at least can, like, record things in their bedroom and, like, release them online. But I feel like there's this, like, weird kind of, like, psychic block of, like, oh, you can't make movies unless, like, you're in Hollywood. But, like, it's easier than ever to make some kind of movie if you have like minimal equipment and maybe a few people that have some talent like you could really do it but like we're stuck in the box like of you know uh the hollywood mind box a little bit so uh because it's not about like creativity for many people it's about like sustainability and like a livelihood and like the people who are going to swoop down and be like we have all this money like it's going to be the people who like want to own what you made, you know, uh, yeah. and to like control it and to, you it's know, Mr. Global. Uh, be able to, yeah, uh, Mr. Global, uh, yeah. you know, uh, but, um, anyways, yeah, like, uh, uh, yeah. or right. these Silicon Valley yeah. nerds that like, for all you could say about like the, the corrupt old Hollywood system, there were at least like executives that kind of like, uh, cared about like putting effort into like crafting movies like developing them and like taking time with them to like make sure they're as like good as they can be then the netflix people just back up a dunk tropical money and like just dump it all over everything and then say like you're an artist right you can do it and then like you make whatever you want and then they send you notes based on like algorithmic analysis that are like completely uh like no offense like autistic like they're like uh you can't have a shot of a boy like riding a bike no down the street at like at like a minute 230 you have a shot of a boy riding a bicycle down the street our analysis shows that audiences don't like shots of uh boys riding down the bike uh you know riding down the street on a bike at two minutes and 30 seconds really? in so you, seen those yeah no there's crazy. been like anecdotal references uh, i heard that somewhere that there's like that's the kind of notes that netflix gives you is like these bizarro i also know that like they switch out there you ever noticed the reason netflix has such kind of shitty generic looking portraits like when you search for stuff it's not like the movie poster, I did right? I notice like one thing, like you know, where they they pick, yeah, they pick like people who are popular. Like, I remember like yeah. uh, there's just like a picture for some movie, like like Twilight or something, or some movie that like Anna Kendrick was in for like two seconds, uh-huh. like the picture, or it was even something like you know that was like some kind of violent thriller, or crime movie or something, and the picture was just like Anna Kendrick smiling. <laughs> and, like, yeah, no, know? no, like, that that and that's being yeah. done by uh, by an algorithm that is basically looking yeah. at your viewing habits and your demographic information and like they will even i mean like they'll do it like by race or something like they'll there's a movie with like mostly black cast but like a white person searching and there's like a white person in the movie they'll like put the white person on the cover like the, yeah, it's stuff exactly. like that and yeah, so it's like, like very in it for two minutes like, yeah like, like <laughs> yeah exactly because he's famous now uh-huh you know? yeah, yeah yeah so like, like uh, they're doing that stuff on like a deep level and it's like none of it's coming from a source of like creativity and uh it, no it sucks. it's the opposite because like it's an evil ai that, yeah like is incapable of like accessing like the true spirit of art and yes. like to be fair like i think that we've like this stuff like well maybe not so much i guess maybe not true detective true detective came out on like the tail end i guess but like a lot of the sort of goal like that was the you know i just was scrolling through the wikipedia article about true detective uh trying to dig up that nick pizzolato article uh which uh you know i'll see if i ever can find it again it might have been they might have deleted it because it was too embarrassing i can't find the quote (laughs) about 
having to reinvent himself every day. Yeah, like, I do like remember not. that, though. Uh, but uh, anyway, so, uh, yeah, but there's someone who said, like, this was an excla- exclamation point on, like, the golden age of television or something. But I think that even before that, that was before, like, really what has defined, like, the you know, sort of mass media in, like, the last 10 years. Like, or it got rolling somewhat before like it really started to cement itself which is like the marvel stuff Mm -hmm. and the disney like uh hegemony like really consolidating like the disney star wars and the marvel comic stuff like which really is like just not healthy and is like about like there's not like nothing more hollow than than that at the end of the day you know mm -hmm. people like have done interesting things with those media like before and it's possible to exercise creativity within those confines but yeah. ultimately it's something that people have done when they had like no other option or they found themselves in that position like the fact that this is something that's like the highest aspiration like these types of characters who are like defined by what their powers are yeah. you know it's just like i don't know like it's just like the whether they can freeze things or <laughs> fire you know like what the you know it's so uh, kind of soulless games, and like, like mechanistic and you know it's very uh you know it's paganistic in a way mm, like uh, yeah. it's like it's very odd and and peculiar you know uh not trying to make like a totalistic statement you know i think that there might be some like i uh, definitely think that there's been some like um, uh, good stuff like done in that medium especially prior to its complete like capture of our culture and like its total disneyfication but mm-hmm. like you know uh i don't know it's just like a real uh shift and that you definitely can see that like melding with the whole like the ip where everything is like a universe you know yeah. like uh yeah. the marvel paradigm like uh you know spreading uh to this thing but i guess this is a complete tangent really this is supposed to be about the representation of ritual abuse uh, yes but i guess we're all being ritually abused by uh disney uh, yeah in a way, in a way. Uh, uh and it's know, basically not, uh, yeah and we're, we're not much closer yeah. unfortunately to having more things uh uh, basically, you know, come out that would like kind of. It doesn't seem like we're getting closer to that. We're getting further away. We're going deeper into the fantasy of the spandex superheroes and uh, all yeah, that stuff. It's it's all Wandavision. We're all in yeah Wandavision. Wanda uh, oh for, God, like yeah, that's a, we're in yeah, what phase four uh, of like the MCU now or some shit like that. <laughs> yeah, exciting. I mean, yeah, uh, n- now TV yeah. innovation is like Wandavision and the Mandalorian is like what. You know, yeah, like is WandaVision. Being... I haven't seen WandaVision to be fair, but I, I feel like it's in black and white or something. So like it's just considered to be innovative. Uh, like you know, Whoa. parts of it are in black and white or something like that, or like oh, it has on. aspects of it that are like you know a send up of sitcoms or something. So it's like yeah, it's all like uh you know uh oh how innovative because like it's a rom com, but like the main character is like Aunt May and Uncle Ben. Oh, you know, God. It's, like, yeah. So that's it now. Now they're going. But they've it's called. It's innovative because yeah. there's never been a superhero movie where it was just Uncle Ben and Aunt May. You know, like yeah, okay, it might be. So I guess you know, I mean, is like, this is gonna it, be now that they're, like, they're gonna or Joker? You know, yeah. Joker. How innovative? How amazing? Like you know, it's a shitty ripoff of Taxi Driver, but it's and a Joker. King of New York. Like, that yeah, what passes for innovation. Yeah, exactly. You know, discovering like a you know a shitty pastiche of forty year old movies, but because like you know it's technically 
uh, in the DC universe, and yep. this man is actually the Joker. Yeah. Uh, it's innovative yep. because, like, you know, yeah, this movie has existed for forty years, but you've never seen it with the Joker before. Yeah. Like, so that's like. Yeah, you know, that that I think they're I think uh, they're basically they're going out now and they are colonizing other genres outside of the superhero genre, and they're going to try to take over them as much as possible, so that you will have basically the biggest romantic comedies are not going to be Nora Ephron movies with like Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. It's going to be like one of it. It's like, you know, like a Scarlet Witch and like a yeah, well, Tom, Tom Hanks will be playing like, you know, uh, the Beyonder and like, you know, <laughs> uh, Meg Ryan will be playing Madam Web. And uh, yeah, it's going to be like, you know, uh, kind of like marriage story, but with like Cyclops and Jean Grey. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can see him like getting pissed off and like you know he like is taking his glasses off and like breaking a hole in the wall and like Jean Grey like takes their like baby and like is like I'm leaving you know? yeah I'm He's, leaving like, I'm sorry you showed <laughs> me your true face uh, and people are going to like, like praise it yeah it'll like, win fucking it so Oscars clearly. yeah yeah this like, is yeah like, this is it, it, uh, it it's a dark moment we're in uh, it's a dark winter in Hollywood um yeah, yeah okay like, so you know i can't control my optic blast like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yes uh okay uh all right, all right. Let, let's we'll move on now uh sorry that, that was, was a fun huge tangent huge tangent um, it's okay yeah. we're we're, um, we're at 243 right. I hope that, that was an uh, adequate answer to that question um yeah. i hope so too uh, yeah it represents me so you don't think you're really an ant? No, 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 I wasn't an ant. Like, like, the assignment, according to Miss Skolnick, who was, like, this hippy-dippy teacher that we had, um, your spirit animal could be one that, like, embodied your characteristics, but also would have challenged you. So the ant was, like, representative of all the things that were going to happen with me. Conformity. Yeah, conformity, like, treachery, like, yeah, things Number six uh, from uh, Computer Coward. Um, uh, have you guys ever directly experienced uh, Shaitan, Satan, demons, jinn in your life that made you actually spooked? What happened? Like in The Exorcist, how the demon came into the house and then the girl's body, it was not abstract or deniable. Um, well, th- Definitely I feel like- nothing that wasn't abstract or deniable. Yeah, we did yeah. answer this question kind of. Yeah, we talked about whether we experienced anything in I the guess last the, Q&A, the, spe- the specificity here is like, uh yeah did we see gin uh, and like in a way that was undeniable uh no i've never seen kind of anything like that happen. that was den- uh definitely nothing that was undeniable i've known people who have told me that they had something where it was like an un- they like straight up i saw like a demon and like it yeah. was not deniable um, I, I, but i haven't had that experience same um, i know people you know, um who have seen like beings on um ayahuasca like you know little like right. kind of fairy fairy gin beings um well you've taken that did you not see any beings now you didn't. no you i saw, never did like, never did mm, yeah uh, um kind of bummed out about yeah, that but also i i was told that you shouldn't trust them necessarily like they can be harmless but like the, even though they weren't called gins 
uh, they were, you know, I mean, maybe these are the Claxton men or something like that. But basically, it was like, uh, don't. I think I heard once, you know, you're supposed, you were supposed to say if you encountered one of these uh, beings, like, are you my teacher? And then I don't know, almost like a leprechaun. Uh, like they're not allowed to lie to you directly so if they say like yes i'm your teacher then like you can kind of kick it with them and, and talk to them but if they say Are anything else evasive not to lie? Eh, i don't know if leprechaun but it feels I like guess a, they can't lie directly yeah it's like a weird trick uh, of like uh you know i'm technically but like the fine print is like i can say something manipulative and like you know uh we're all like everybody's like a teacher and then you'd be like get out of here jen like you know it's supposed to be yeah, like that right. i never like, saw it like though very, yeah it's like yeah. it's like are you a cop like kind of you know, yeah exactly yeah no, it's literally yeah. like are you a cop like they can't legally say yeah. that they're not a cop if they are you know or yeah. something like that right. uh but i i have not directly experienced that um so i guess i, I can't really speak to it but other people have mm, right um yeah um right yeah i will say two things uh well for one i did i was recently watching some documentary about mothman and uh they <laughs> had an interview with the guy who wrote the movie for the mothman prophecies okay he said something interesting that was like you know when it comes to like the supernatural or you know the whatever you want to call it i don't really like the term supernatural myself that's probably what he used he said like you know there's people who are who are mozarts and they're salieries you know there's people who want to uh you know who want to experience or are fascinated by it and then there's people who actually experience it you know mm being the former being the salieries yeah the other being mozart and he was like you know uh but i'm happy being like you know a salieri i guess uh himself never having experience he was very like sort of sweaty guy talking about how you know his life in la like writing these movies but uh i do have um i do have this is definitely not not abstract or deniable but i didn't mention it because i thought it was like too like uh you know not uh really impressive enough the first time we got this question but since we got it twice i will mention it um, I do have a memory that I don't even remember, like, if it really happened or if it was a dream or what. And I would sometimes, when I was young, have, like, these sort of, uh, sort of sleep paralysis-type visions where I would see people come into the room and then turn into objects, like a, a certain thing. And one that I, I saw, when I was young, I had, like, this really, um, you know, uh, strong kind of, like, uh, you know, when I would lie in my bed at night, I would always, you know, I was afraid of the dark. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, I think everyone is a little bit, uh, you know, sure. uh, to this day. Like, obviously, you know, the dark, it's primarily scary. Uh, so I would usually keep the, the a hallway laid on the door ajar. Mm -hmm. And I would, like, you know, watch the door, like, very intently. Um, almost, like, in sort of fear that something would appear in the door. Which is odd, because, like, you know, in like, from thinking like you know really you'd be worried about like the dark areas of the room you know and not sure. like the light area of the room uh but you know i uh i think that also part of it was that there was an illustration of uh you know the famous uh, manhattan alien abduction in a in a book about alien abduction that i bought at, like the scholastic book fair when i was young mm -hmm. uh that like you know really uh, influenced my sort of fear that something would appear in the doorway because i was had the illustration depicted it that was the one that was witnessed uh, as stephen greer famously said or well he oh when they threatened to kidnap so, you know, uh, the allegedly UN... witnessed by the u.n general secretary yeah, yeah yeah like uh the story that I heard that was in, you know, this book for fourth graders about the event was that, uh, you know, he saw it like the woman sort of being levitated out of her bedroom window with these entities towards this, this saucer. But anyway, so there was an illustration in this book of the abduction and, and the gray kind of appearing in the doorway. And that was something that always scared me. I think that even before that, when I was even before I had seen that illustration, before I had that uh, other fear of the door, 
I think that I had another kind of feeling that there would something appear. And I have a memory of seeing, like, appearing in the doorway, like, an anthropomorphized, like, I'm getting, like, kind of chills as I'm saying this. I don't want to, like, you know, <laughs> okay. uh, even, like, I don't like to contemplate it too much. And really, it's, like, a, it's bizarre because, like, I can't even really say if this truly did happen. But I do have a memory of seeing, like, this anthropomorphized cat. Like, if you want to, like look up what it is you can look up bake neko uh <laughs> the yokai wow uh, and uh you, the illustration on the wikipedia article of bake neko because i looked up before this like cat gin or something cat spear something like that like a uh, you know um and this is like really exactly kind of what i mean i don't have a cat or anything and it wasn't cat sized it was it was adult sized when i was a kid um which i guess maybe some of these things are sometimes depicted as being uh in this sort of folklore and i do have a memory you know, I'm not saying this is ab- not abstract or not deniable, but I do have a memory of seeing, like, you know, in this sort of bright light, uh, and it's interesting because in this article, actually, you know, I discovered this for the first time uh, when I was sort of looking this up, uh, having been reminded of it by this question. And uh, it says, The sight of a cat standing on its hind legs to reach a lamp, its face lit with anticipation, could have seemed eerie and unnatural like a yokai, just like a speculation about... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the source of, of this uh, idea of this cat, uh, Yokai, this quote-unquote changed cat. Yeah, I'm looking um, at it right so, now. Yeah, it's very scary. It kind of <laughs> very in terrifying. In the essence of the light, you know, it was, like, very, very lit up by the light, you know. Um, so, yeah, I have this, and it looked very much like this. It even had, like, this sort of thing on its head. It even this kind of headdress that you kind of see in the picture. And yeah. I've never seen this before, like, uh, to, like literally today when I looked this up. Um, and uh, But the headdress thing, it also had... Uh, so I have a memory of that, but I don't actually know if that was a dream or, or what. And like, you know, just I wouldn't even have mentioned it. But because we asked this question twice, yeah, I'll just give that tidbit uh, wow. that I okay. do have that memory. Yeah. Uh, very scary looking. I'm looking at like fan art about it right now. Uh, this demon cat is sus. So uh, I feel for you. Yeah. There's a, <laughs> also on the Wikipedia article for it. There's like this, um, you know, uh, yeah, shape shifted cat woman. Um, like uh yeah it's a kabuki play it's an illustration of a kabuki play it's a cat that is shape-shifted into an old woman uh and you can see the picture the the giant uh face of the cat in the background yeah uh oh very God. spooky yeah um wow. yeah uh yeah anyway okay. so uh maybe we'll do that when we There's do our a... uh, oh yeah and uh episode about otters or whatever. yeah 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 That's shape-shifting animals uh, sure about the bake neko uh, <laughs> for sure yeah. um okay so uh um, let's uh let's move on to yeah. uh number seven. Oh, this one should be fun uh yeah you want to read that yeah uh I like that SJ are storming the vampire's castle, but what's your take on Mark Fisher's RIP work? Love to hear your thoughts on capitalist realism and, quote, the weird and the eerie concepts as they feel very SJ. Cheers, lads. Um, I haven't actually read capitalist realism. I have read the vampire's castle, like, essay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, but I vaguely recall, like, hearing about, like, the weird and the eerie as uh, concepts and that... uh, like uh d like uh or yes another book by him is the weird and the eerie yeah yeah um yeah oh and he's talked about um yeah this would be interesting to read actually uh some of the most haunting and anomalous fiction of the 20th century belongs to these two modes yeah okay that's interesting sounds like kind of like literary criticism i mean you know uh talking about hp lovecraft hg wells you know uh I feel like maybe some of this has just been assimilated. I feel like I might be able to predict like the content of this book well enough without having read it, but it might be interesting to read uh, and to discuss because mm-hmm. I am into that 
you know, in particular the imagery of vampires. You know, we've discussed the concept of dracularity uh, as uh, a term of analysis. Uh, yes, exactly. And exploring uh, subliminal jihad related topics. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that when I first heard about this, which I think I honestly first heard about exiting the vampire castle on Chapo or something back, uh, you know, I've since long stopped listening to Chapo, but, uh, or, or Combo yeah. Fash House. Uh, <laughs> Combo uh, Fash House, yeah, exactly. But, it's hard to really, yeah, like, but you I was know. intrigued instantly by the title. Sure, uh, yeah, of course. But, um, right, How yeah. How could you not be? Um, uh, and, like, he's yeah, super, influ- uh, it's crazy how influential... It's like I I really have pretty much never gone looking for Mark Fisher, but when I started listening to podcasts more and as this kind of um, ecosystem of like left wing kind of pod like quasi Marxist and then also these like dirtbag kind of Brooklyn podcasts were all launching. It's like every single one of them was talking about Mark Fisher all the time, talking about the vampire castle, talking about like, I mean, I, if you go down the list, like zero books, like red scare Chapo uh, and probably a bunch of others too. It just seems to like, always uh be like a huge kind of like um almost like the north star for navigating like this era and i guess you could say he committed suicide in 2017 so that was actually probably around the time that i feel like there was a huge explosion of interest in his work Mm -hmm. like capitalist realism which i haven't read i i kind of would want to um and i'd like to read the weird and the eerie as well also literary criticism uh Uh, capitalist realism was more i think based upon uh i don't know if it was literary criticism the idea that there's no alternative to capitalism yeah Yeah, like the frederick jameson yeah the frederick jameson kind of kind of like end of history type thing yes yes right but there's a lot of cultural stuff mixed into it like i think i think he was somebody who would talk about you know the popularity of like apocalyptic and like zombie you know uh narratives and things like Mm -hmm. that and how like that's an that that's kind of a feature or an expression of capitalist realism that we constantly like the only other alternative we can think of is like literally the end of the world and just like everything collapsing and being destroyed because Mm -hmm. like there's no uh capacity anymore i do think that's like broadly that that is a kind of like operative concept that we are dealing with in our world is that there really is like no exit ramp from uh from capitalism you know uh yeah like it it feels like everywhere you go like it's inescapable unless you go to the dprk but even they're like surrounded (laughs) like they're surrounded by capital you know that's like it's it's always want to get its tentacles in like you know the first chance it gets so it it, there that lack of like alternativity uh, i guess um and, yeah, uh, some of the ideas here, like, remind me of uh, someone who, like, I'm a huge, uh, well, like, you know, obviously I have some critiques, as I do of everyone, but, like, definitely, probably, like, the contemporary, like, philosophical author I'm the biggest stand of is Willa Halak, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and his book, uh, Restating Orientalism, definitely goes off into this idea of, like, uh, primary domains, and I think the kind of what he's talking, uh, what Fisher talked about in Capitalist Realism uh, is similar to the idea of, of primary domains, which, you know, uh, Halak says that capitalism is the, the primary domain where things are sort of defined as, like, the idea in Fisher maybe of business ontology, mm-hmm. uh, which he raises, uh, that 
everything is understood in, in capitalist or in business terms. Uh, you know, everything is related to like the, uh, the capital that it, that it produces or that's the primary system of value. Whereas other domains, uh, you know, he talks a lot about, uh, talks a lot about Islamic law in particular, uh, mm-hmm. in this, in this sense, uh, um, you know, are sort of, uh, set to the way time. But at one time, you know, uh, capitalism itself was a subversive domain. And the idea is that, of course, subversive domains can at times come to be uh, dominant again in the future. Um, although, you know, uh, this is just uh, me reading the Wikipedia article on um, capitalist realism, but uh, at the bottom is a section called Realism. Um, and, uh, you know, this article needs more complete citations, so we'll see. But uh, okay. it says, uh, The realism aspect of capitalist realism and its inspiration, socialist realism, is based on Jacques Lacan's distinction between the real and realities such as capitalist realism, capitalism being a quote-unquote reality, uh, which are ideologically based understandings of the world that reject facts that lie outside their interpretations. Fisher posits that an appeal to the real, which is suppressed by capitalist realism, may begin to deconstruct the pervasiveness of the ideology. Fisher points to areas such as climate change, mental health, and bureaucracy that can be highlighted to show the weaknesses and gaps in capitalist realism. I definitely agree with an aspect of that, um, and... uh, I think that uh, this this resonates a lot with what uh, Halak might say about some of these things, in particular climate change, as like mm-hmm. an indictment of the system of capitalism, showing like the you know that its rationality is tied to its reasons and its own sort of self-producing goals. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do wonder like about this idea of it's very hard to deal in terms of uh, this like ideologically unbound real. Uh, to me, like yeah. when I see like the phrase "the real," I always think of Al Haq. You know, I think of Allah. You know, uh, that is the <laughs> yeah. real. You know, uh, who calls himself such in the Quran, which like you know, uh, you, but is that like an ideologically bound reality? And the real is separate from that. Obviously, it's our goal to achieve that real. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if like Fisher would agree. Like you know, the thing like how do we act, like uh yeah how do you define which you probably doesn't even believe in you know to get to this unbounded truth a very difficult thing and I feel like that kind of is something that you could say is a problem with the idea of the vampire castle where you know it's trying to get to this like core class based analysis avoiding these sort of identitarian identity traps but that is itself very difficult and there is sort of. There, like, you know, there might be an identitarian aspect to class. You know, it's very hard to, like, get to this purity that mm-hmm. is maybe sought for in certain ways. I mean, that's the thing about the... Maybe this is why... Because in reading this, uh, you know, uh, essay, Exiting the Vampire Castle, it's very hard to understand why he refers to it as a vampire castle. And I think that mm. maybe the reason is a reference to Dracula um, yeah. and that, you know, Jonathan Harker has such a difficult time escaping from that castle. Yeah. And I think that maybe that is, although, you know, the solutions that are offered, and I think especially in its sort of representation by others, like, uh, and its interception by others uh, who have read it, like uh, this promotion by certain podcasters and like the sort of post left, people like yeah. uh there does seem to be kind of like this uh easy solution you know just walk out the front door and yeah. uh deny uh you know and embrace like a cla- fully class-based analysis stop doing uh, id poll like, and just like know. yeah embrace uh, yeah. a class analysis uh, and like that's that's it done uh yes uh, which this is you know part of this es- yeah like uh yeah this is no, go ahead. part of this essay that i kind of wanted to read yeah mm-hmm. uh, this is the section called inside the vampire's castle The first configuration is what I came to call the Vampire's Castle. 
uh, again, I just feel like this guy has a sort of fascination with the weird and the eerie, so, like, there's a certain appeal to the image. But anyway, uh, the yeah. Vampire's Castle specializes in propagating guilt. It is driven by a priest's desire to excommunicate and condemn, an academic pedant's desire to be the first to be seen to spot a mistake, and a hipster's desire to be one of the in-crowd. The danger in attacking the Vampire's Castle is that it can look as if, and it will do everything it can to reinforce this thought, that one is also attacking the struggles against racism, sexism, heterosexism. So, you know, this is, like, obviously just really, like, you can kind of see how this is uh, something that I really hate, like, just, like, the way that everything converges on this, like, culture war bullshit, like, mm -hmm. that we just always have to deal with. Like, you know, uh, it's not state, it's not saying anything about id poll, like, in that word, but it's, like, obviously here. But yeah. far from, uh, anyway, but far from being the only legitimate expression of such struggles, the Vampire's Castle is best understood as a bourgeois liberal perversion and appropriation of the energy of these movements. I definitely think that, that like, there's obviously truth to a lot of this. Yeah, The yeah. Vampire's Castle was born, yeah, like, uh, you know, I definitely think this happened with, uh, to, to an extent with Black Lives Matter, where, oh, like, yeah. it was something that was, like, genuine, but in many cases, like, you know... And even, the, even the their beloved DSA that the Fisher fans, uh, you know, on the podcast uh, love so yeah. much, like, yeah, for sure. I think that in a lot of cases, you know, there's still, like, uh, aspects of the Black Lives Matter movement that, like, have not been, you know, I wouldn't say are fully co-opted, but I think that in a lot of cases, like, people listened just long enough, and with each new sort of uh, uh, development in this struggle, like, people uh, in power listened just long enough to think, how can we you know uh use this to our advantage yes and then, you know they disengage but anyway yeah. <laughs> uh the vampire's castle was born the moment when the struggle not to be defined by identitarian categories became the quest to have identities recognized by a bourgeois big other the privilege i certainly enjoy as a white male consists in part in my not being aware of my ethnicity and my gender and it is a sobering and revelatory experience to occasionally be made aware of these blind spots but rather than seeking a world in which everyone achieves freedom from identitarian classification, the Vampire's Castle seeks to corral people into identicamps, where they are forever defined in terms set by dominant power, crippled by self-consciousness and isolated by a logic of solipsism, which insists that we cannot understand one another unless we belong to the same identity group. I've noticed a fascinating... I think this is like a little bit of a straw man, to be honest, but anyway. I've noticed a fascinating magical, magical inversion projection disavowal mechanism whereby the sheer mention of class is now automatically treated as if that means one is trying to downgrade the importance of race and gender. In fact, the exact opposite is the case, as the vampire's castle uses an ultimately liberal understanding of race and gender to obfuscate class. In all of the absurd and traumatic Twitter storms about privilege earlier this year, it was noticeable the discussion of class privilege was entirely absent. The task, as ever, remains the articulation of class, gender, and race, but the founding move of the vampire's castle is the disarticulation of class from other categories. The problem that the Vampire's Castle was set up to solve is this. How do you hold immense wealth and power while also appearing as a victim, marginal and oppositional? The solution was already there. In the Christian Church. So the VC has recourse to all the infernal strategies, dark pathologies, and psychological torture instruments Christianity invented, and which Nietzsche described in his Genealogy of Morals. Okay. The priesthood of bad conscience, this nest of pious guilt mongers, is exactly what Nietzsche predicted when he said that something worse than Christianity was already on the way. Now here it is. <laughs> the Vampire's Castle feeds on the energy and anxieties and vulnerabilities of young students, but most of all lives by converting the suffering of particular groups, the more, quote, marginal the better, into academic capital. The most lauded figures of the Vampire Castle are those who have spouted a new market in suffering, 
Those who can find a group more oppressed and subjugated than any previously exploited will find themselves promoted through the ranks very quickly. So I think that there's aspects of this which are definitely true. Yeah. I think that we've talked about them in the past in the podcast, mm-hmm. but I'm more interested in discussing how a lot of this is whining from someone who obviously, like, you know, feels like attacked on Twitter for, like, being white, you uh. know? Like, uh, and also, like, the whole aspect of, like, uh, Christianity and Nietzsche. Yeah, that, um, that kind of jumped like, out at me uh, as the most, like, yeah, uh, really? Like... like um yes like for one like there's like a fundamental idea that like priests are bad and their desire to excommunicate and condemn uh which you know like maybe you know i am muslim so like i wouldn't want to be excommunicated like you know uh i wouldn't want to be condemned by a priest like in a medieval sense you know it's funny because in a way the gothic which he's obviously invoking here and the whole thing of the vampire's castle and the illusion of dracula the whole thing about the gothic is about like sort of a romantic medievalism in a way Mm -hmm. and so it's interesting that he's sort of using this medieval imagery Mm -hmm. of like the the sort of priest and the 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 castle to create this sort of spook or or specter and then you know of course his lodestar in all this is the 19th century nietzsche who like you know (laughs) not that everything attached to him like you know not that he he gets something because a bad rap for just being like an out and out nazi but like you know uh inspiring that's not, them like, unwarranted that's yeah. not like totally un- you know like the like yeah like you know there's many dimensions of nietzsche's writing and you can't like blame nazi germany on nietzsche but like his like his uh antith- antipathy towards like the slave morality of like uh christianity the nazarene uh, scum like, the basically that, yeah um like that is part of like a larger well it's, it's just like interesting that like we would you know uh even in this whole thing where it's like well let's uh you know or maybe we're gonna do that let's get back to the real you know what's real what's really important you know we're gonna write off like uh basically alienating a bunch of like poor people in the world who might be christian you know or might have like revere priests for instance yeah yeah fundamentally bad that needs to condemn you know like uh uh, that's an interesting uh, you know, i mean yeah just there, as he uh, just as he talks about kind of like the solipsism in the vampire castle in academia and media he's a he's kind of like uh committing some of the same offenses of like it's uh incredibly bourgeois academic to like invoke the genealogy of morals of all things yeah in fact it's arguably like as annoying as it might be to have like some contemporary academic be like you know, as Judith Butler says, or like as like Gilles Deleuze says, like mm-hmm. you know, we are all re-territorializing towards like a cyborg existence of rhizomatic being or whatever. Uh-huh. Like, uh, you know, it's almost more annoying for someone to be like Nietzsche, like you know, very uncritically to like evoke it, like and be like his genealogy of morals. Like, come on, like give me a break. Like, yeah, you know, I'm not saying there's something of value in Nietzsche, but like. To but say like, that, like, he predicted, like, the woke movement in 2013. Yeah, like, yeah. if you read Nietzsche, what you can really see coming is the Third Reich. Like, that, <laughs> yeah, like, you exactly. Know, his, like, love of Wagner, like, you can, like, uh, uh-huh. you know, read Untimely Meditations. I know he mentioned the genealogy of morals. But read Untimely Meditations, some of what Nietzsche has to say about art and, like, about Wagner. And tell me that, like, you know, what uh, the big concern you come away with that, uh, you know, the, the big... Uh, prescience that uh, you feel and that is uh, of 
the SJWs, you know, like, it's like, give me a break. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, you know, it, it, it um, hits off, and I, I think, it, and it, it kind of, like, it, it's interesting because, like, if you look at a lot of the, like, very uh, successful podcasts, like the kind of dirtbag leftist podcasts, they also embrace a certain kind of, like, Nietzschean kind of cool, distant, ironic nihilism that I feel like that that there's something maybe maybe like that element is kind of what resonates with them in Mark Fisher's work as much as any of the other stuff is kind of like like I feel like that's a crypto like don't worry like I'm still a cool Gen Xer let me quote Nietzsche right now and like talk about how Christianity sucks you know like yeah, it's like exactly. that kind of thing like and like how, that's comforting you know, to like even if you're getting out of the vampire castle uh, you don't have to reappraise anything about religion or like even like where it's positioned in the world in the 21st century uh it's it's like yeah like even what nietzsche had to say about religion in the late 1800s uh religion was or you know i don't know anybody else like marx or lenin for that matter like they were dealing with a very different um power arrangement i guess in terms of like religion being like a huge ideological force that was like integrated with governments and had a very reactionary actively reactionary stance um towards any kind of like progressive change um they were like very not to say they like aren't embedded in power structures today at all but i feel like um at this point like i'm i don't really see the priority in like like dunking on christianity uh, using Nietzsche quotes like to get at like yeah. ID poll people like it's also it's a weird kind of thing maybe he thinks that that would resonate with the people that he's criticizing you, you know what you guys are being you're being like some crazy Christians and like you know would the people mm-hmm. in London or Manhattan be like oh, no like not Christians ooh like oh we must stop you know what I mean it's like it's like accepting this certain kind of framing of like you're doing religious suppression uh, and it's bad because it's like religious. It's not bad because you're all these other re- all these other more valid reasons that he gives, like that this is more of like a strategy, like a broader social, uh, socio political, economic strategy to um, like neutralize any kind of like revolutionary energy and like co opt it and then like uh, build this evil castle that monopolizes kind of like uh, opinion production, like sentimental production in our economy and I don't know, frames our reality and yes. all these things. Like, like, but to, to take the pot shot at like Christianity at this point, it's like, ugh, like, I mean, it's also it was 2013, so things might have still been. I mean, you know, uh, Pizzolatto, a true detective, talked a lot about being like reading Nietzsche and being influenced by that. Yeah, it pops course, up quite yeah, often. Re- yeah. I just like, I, you um, won't catch yeah. me uh, bringing up Nietzsche as like uh, the way people would like quote, you know, Marx or well, something. Yeah, like, like, no. Cl- cl- you know, he's, a, he's not, you know, he's all about how the world really is. You know, he's atheistic, which is like not really like i i almost feel like these people don't really read nietzsche i almost like because like or at least not carefully mm-hmm. maybe they do or did like a while ago uh but like you know i almost feel like i don't know like to me like it's uh yeah and another thing that this is part of the reason why i prefer our formulation of dracularity because something that i feel like is uh like missed is like the like uh ideological or even materialistic uh context of the idea of the vampire's castle what is the van like the castle of the vampire is uh, uh the idea of the 
someone who I feel like is a historian of the weird, the eerie might, uh, you know, want to be sensitive to this. Mm -hmm. But the idea of the vampire's castle is a product of like a 19th century, like uh, a British Anglo, like, you know, I guess, uh, yeah, British really, you know, Bram Stoker being Irish, like, uh, but of course there have been other, uh, you know, vampire things like Polidori, uh, but before, but like, that's a colonial like fear yeah. of like what you know this sort of eastern, medieval specter this gothic yeah exactly like the uh, oriental you know, eastern european uh, like swarthy like old world like kind of a mystical barbaric specter in the east exactly yeah like yeah, if anything exactly. you could say and the vampire like, castle is kind of like some kind of weird stand-in for like a like we're in uh we're we're being too psychologically like stalinist in like our cancel culture habits and like we need to escape from this evil eastern vampire castle that is like you know making people uh like cancel each other and have show trials on twitter i mean i don't think that's really what he's going for but it's like that lines up more than the formulation he's using well i mean that whole idea well i guess like you know uh yeah, I think that there, there is, like, an aspect of the same thing. Like, you know, uh, this might be just uh, you supervening your general interest in, uh, you know, uh, people being unfair to Stalin. But I think <laughs> that there actually is an aspect of that. in Because in some of the criticism of Stalin, there is, like, an idea of, like, oh, he's he's Hunnic, you know? He's, uh-huh. like, this Eastern yeah, uh, death, Trotsky, despot, you it's know? It's his essential, like, a Caucasian you know? character. He's, you know yeah uh he's the or you know the oriental despot who you know and also that's the past you know mm-hmm. and uh, it's this world of superstition and and fear and like the idea and like dracula is all about our us rational 19th century people using our tools such as uh hypnosis and trains <laughs> to uh you know fight against this power of like the the ancient past i'm trying to find like one of my favorite uh quotes from untimely uh, meditations to just uh you know uh cast a certain uh light on uh this uh you know not one of my uh favorites but uh one of the uh most uh you know striking uh quotes from yeah this is uh what uh nietzsche uh has to say to be fair this is one of his earlier works he says this is about like history you know and he's also kind of inveighing against uh, academics and how like you know there isn't a culture uh, the reason is that history confuses the feelings and sensibility when these are not strong enough to assess the past by themselves. He who no longer dares to trust himself but involuntarily asks of history, how ought I to feel about this, finds that his timidity gradually turns him into an actor and that he is playing a role, usually indeed many roles, and therefore playing them badly and superficially. Gradually, all congruity between the man and his historical domain is lost. We behold pert little fellows associating with the Romans as though they were their equals, and they root and burrow in the remains of the Greek poets as though these two were corpora for their dissection, and they were as vilia for their own literary corpora may be. Uh, sorry, as their own literary corpora may be. Suppose one of them is engaged with Democritus, as I always feel like asking, why not Heraclitus, or Philo, or Bacon, or Descartes, or anyone else? Why then? Why does it have to be a philosopher? Why not a poet or an orator? And why a Greek at all? Why not an Englishman or a Turk? So uh, you can kind of see uh, how like there's a certain uh, sensibility here. Uh, there's another uh, one that is uh, truly great. Uh, the same uh, type of thing uh, where he talks about uh, German uh, spirit and life. Uh, that is like it, that sounds uh, fun. D- d- very, very, very great. Yes, yeah. The idea that like why should a German, you know, study uh, like you know, uh, when you're d- uh, dissociated from the sort of spiritual atmosphere of these historical moorings, 
uh, you know, you sort of lose sense with these sort of academic pedants. You know, they stop caring about like, oh, why will you even study Greek? Why not? It's just study Turks for all that you, for, you know, uh, for all that matters. You know, so um, yeah, like uh, ultimately starts talking about spirit and life. I'm trying to uh, find it because I remember it uh, being uh, pretty great. This whole book, a lot of it, Untimely Meditations, a lot of these essays in here are all about you know Wagner and how he will be uh, a new Alexander or sorry a counter Alexander who will return uh, the Hellenic spirit to the Orientalized Earth you know and get rid of the uh, dirty Oriental uh, Christianity you know to reverse <laughs> what Alexander did and get us back to what's truly good and in Hellenic. Um, so okay, okay Larouche. Damn. Um, uh, okay. Yes, uh, a little bit of Larouche. I guess I guess um, Larouche. No, yeah, I don't know. I, I but the, the Hellenic thing. Yeah, I don't know. Just uh, okay, Nazi. I guess. <laughs> like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, we Germans feel an abstraction. We have all been ruined by history. A proposition which destroyed its roots. All hope of a future national culture. For any such hope grows out of the belief in the genuineness and immediacy of German feeling, out of the belief in a sound and whole inwardness. What is there left to hope for or believe in if the source of hope and belief is muddled, if inwardness has learned to make leaps, to dance, to paint itself, to express itself in abstractions with calculation, and gradually to lose itself? And how should the great productive spirit continue to endure among a people no longer secure in a unified inwardness, and which falls asunder into the cultivated with a miseducated and uh, misled inwardness on the one hand and the uncultivated with an inaccessible inwardness on the other. How should that spirit endure if unity of feeling among the people has been lost? And if, moreover, it knows that this feeling is falsified and retouched precisely among that part of the people which calls itself the cultured part and lays claim to possession of the natural artist national artistic conscious. Uh, even if he here and there an individual's taste and judgment has grown more subtle and sublimated, that is no advantage to him. He is racked by the knowledge that he has to speak as if he were to a sect and is no longer needed in the body of his nation. Perhaps he now prefers to bury his treasure rather than suffer the disgust of being presumptuously patronized by a sect or uh, an identity camp while his heart <laughs> is full of pity for all. The instinct of the nation no longer comes out to meet him. It is useless for him to stretch out his arms towards them in longing. What is there now left of the spirit but to turn his inspired hatred against that constraint, against the barriers erected in the so-called culture of his nation, so as to condemn what to him, as a living being and one productive of life, is destructive and degrading? Thus he exchanges profound insight into his destiny for the divine joys of creation and construction, and ends the solitary man of knowledge and satiated sage. It is the most painful of spectacles. He who beholds it will know a sacred compulsion. Here, he says to himself, I must render aid. That higher unity in nature and soul of a people must again be created. That breach between inner and outer must again vanish under the hammer blows of necessity. But what weapons can he employ? What does he have but, again, his profound insight, propagating it and sowing it with hands he hopes to implant a need? Uh, and out of a vigorous need, there will one day arise a vigorous deed. And so as to leave no doubts of the source of my example of that need, that necessity, that perception, let me say expressly that it is for German unity and that highest sense that we strive, and strive more ardently than we do for political reunification, the unity of German spirit and life after the abolition of the antithesis of form and content of inwardness and convention. Uh, okay. So, well, I'll give it to Based. Fisher. I'll give uh, it to Fisher. He does sound like he's complaining about SJWs, but that's also because yeah. he sounds yeah, like a actually Nazi. Actually, <laughs> the same 
<laughs> academic pedants. Yeah, like he has the same sort of complaint about academic pedants in the same way. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I just re- happened to have read this like more recently uh, than I read Genealogy of Morals. Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't recall Genealogy of Morals uh, really uh, being very different. I mean, if not worse, I don't actually think Jews are mentioned on Timely Meditations, but I'm pretty sure that they're mentioned in uh genealogy of morals yeah. uh and yeah. uh you can yes. kind of see uh, that is the i mean like he said if you attack the vampire castle the risky run is being seen to be like a nazi but then maybe you shouldn't quote nietzsche because he was kind of a proto-nazi um and like you know i mean that's the thing i mean that's what we would want to avoid right when attacking uh storming the vampire castle as we've said is like uh like there has to be a way of storming it that isn't like storming it as a nazi and yeah i mean, not to say that's like oh like, imminent but like yeah i don't know oh uh, yeah i mean also like i'm just not like satisfied with like you know this uh, i feel like this analysis lacks complexity and again yeah like the whole idea of exiting yeah exiting the vampire castle is easy and even jonathan harker like you know a barrister from uh london managed mm-hmm. to do it yeah which is not very impressive uh you know he escaped the chains of woke idpol even though he was like a weak sickly barrister who had been drained of his blood yeah uh, and prematurely aged uh-huh. um i think that it's much more uh important like a uh, simon belmont to uh bravely go into the vampire castle and uh destroy all the lamps and get out the turkey legs and uh the you know various bottles of holy water and cross-shaped like shuriken to throw uh and you know use that also like you know i just don't uh that i feel like that uh mention was more inspired by uh castlevania than necessarily by this essay (laughs) that's true i don't necessarily agree to his paradigm of what like the vampire castle is like you know i feel like if you listen to our 9-11 episode discussion of dracularity it's a bit more nuanced because Uh it's not just like the spooky image that's like a attention grabbing like he doesn't explain in this in this essay about the vampire castle like why did he choose that metaphor just to invoke the medieval and say, like, all oh, these people who are mean to me on Twitter, you know, for being white or something, which, you know, uh, yeah, there's annoying people on Twitter, but, like, give me a break. Like, uh, well, you know, this might be a lo- this, vampire. This like, might be a low blow, but you know, it's like he it would have made more sense in his framing if he had called it, say, the cathedral. Uh, like the neo reactionary oh, uh, like Ventures Moldbug did, which I think they came out of like some uh, of the same. I think he might have come out of the same university milieu that uh, Nick Land went through. Punk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, so you know, Very there's a, it's interesting. I mean, Mark Mark Fisher kind of ended up on like the left flank of whatever that kind of thing was, but uh, it's not surprise. I mean, it kind of does sound like he's talking about like the cathedral, the way like Ventures Moldbug kind of talked about it. It's like kind of the same. It's a very similar thing, except he's kind of trying to be like, well, you know, we like I'm a real leftist because I'm storming. Uh, I'm trying to escape the vampire castle. And, you know, I don't know. It's a uh, uh, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in Fisher. I'd be kind of curious to, like, read a little more of his uh you know his content but i feel like there's maybe certain lacks of uh there there is a certain lack of like maybe specificity or complexity or whatever maybe just some like some kind of leaps that like don't help 
flesh out this concept of the vampire castle and i think that's even like floated into the bloodstream of people that are very very like you know all about fisher that you know like these podcasters and stuff that uh that cite him a lot of the time um i think there's like valuable things there but i think there's also maybe some like i don't know undercooked formulations perhaps uh or a lack of like more nuance and specificity uh the genealogy i'm just uh paging through the genealogy of morals right now like there's really some stuff in here uh (laughs) yeah um like uh i won't read it just in the interest of time but yeah well uh, maybe we'll do a whole sus nietzsche episode and like track his influence on culture uh because you know uh, just to say like if anyone was going to say like oh well untimely meditations you know uh that was in nietzsche's early period i think genealogy of morals might have been uh, a bit later i really don't know like uh i'm not niche yet but I'm, I'm expert enough to know that that is like sort of uh self uh damning uh of a reference uh in in that but mm-hmm. um yeah it was uh it was significantly before but so it, just in case anybody says like well you know that's from his early uh earlier writings you know a genealogy of morals uh, <laughs> you know uh well, you know, a genealogy of Mars is, is probably worse. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, again, like, I think that there's definitely uh, some truth, like, to what he's saying. Like, I think that, like, he's identified something that is, uh, you know, a real phenomenon that I feel like we've given, like, some uh, attention to, like, in, in the past, like, some of what he, he was talking about. But at yeah. the same time, like, you know, like, the canonical status of this, like, among, like, certain people, like, it's not, like, you know, it's uh, something that is yeah, i don't know but uh i i think yeah, there's more there's like a, there's more work to be built on uh i think with some of these concepts that he started to play around with and introduce uh that maybe you know um yeah sadly he's not with us anymore to do it but i feel like uh we should you know uh, try to yeah i don't know sorry to be so mean to him after he's dead but no it's okay i I mean i think he experienced some of these dynamics like uh happening and it definitely uh lines up with things that like i've like observed um or occasionally uh, interacted with and these are kind of trends that are um that that are influential and maybe are they do serve certain roles for like for capital and uh per form a kind of a you know entrapment kind of thing yeah. on uh, uh on people and they they do obfuscate class yeah. and and all these other things and mm-hmm. and like i and think there has been this, yeah. yeah yeah it's interesting like again like you know if in capitalist realism he mentions climate change as a way to it's very uh you know as a way to get outside some of these traps of the capitalist ontology it's interesting to see like as we discussed like that very process of capture yep. happening with the issue of climate change in yep. the same way that it's happened with you know feminism and with uh you know race consciousness uh so that's interesting that he said that climate change was an opportunity for like a kind of epistemological break from like capitalist realism Mm -hmm. is that what he was saying but like it's funny when he like so it got it basically after his not long after his death it got co-opted by like the liberal ngo like capitalist establishment and then like their their biggest uh, most viral moment i'm thinking of extinction rebellion is when a bunch of working class people in like east london like beat the shit out of some guy who like tried to stop a commuting train in the morning in the name of climate change so like that says to me that like a they're going to co-opt whatever resistance there is to this and b that has a 
potential to alienate even more like working class people who are just like have their heads down and are like working you know and like trying to survive and like you know just have get a little bit like get a little bit ahead and like you know uh yeah etc etc and then being like completely kind of almost like not even apathetic but almost hostile to certain kinds of like liberal performative protests that now of course if he was still alive he might very well point out that extinction rebellion is like complete bullshit and this is going to backfire like the vampire castle has now captured climate change and that sucks and et cetera, et cetera. But I think like that, it's not enough to say, I don't think that panned out that like, uh, you know, working class people are going to be conscious about around the world, uh, are, are like very, very clued in and passionate and politically activated or like could easily be activated by like climate change fears. I think, uh, it's gotta get worse before that happens. Well, I think there's two sides of this in a way, because on one hand, like what, yeah, I mean, on, on the other hand, like to say like, oh, you know, climate change now, I do think that there is a, a certain opportunity in climate change, because I think that it is true that climate change is an indictment of like, uh, really of capitalism in many ways, like the capitalist like appropriation of like the discourse around climate change to basically like sell products to perpetuate itself in the same way that it does of other things which really like are you know certain movements like uh there's definitely trends in in these other movements that we talked about that are uh you know cr- critical of, of capitalism that i think you know uh like uh there's uh, potential there's actually positive potential in them as well but i think that you know and i think that there's actually in a way the, you could say the vampire castle, uh, you know, it, it, it's part uh, maybe a machination or a twisty quarter of the vampire castle to be like, oh, well, you know, like this climate change stuff, like that's lib and bourgeois and, uh, you know, uh, the working class doesn't care about that. They only care about being racist, uh, you know, so sure, like, yeah, we can't that, mention climate uh-huh. change because then we won't reach the workers who are all who are all racist, you know, like, interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Change, There's a whole know? kinds of There's ways kind that of you like, could, you could you know, play with that. And basically, which I think is like, yeah. you know, that is also like kind of like a straw man or like, you know, uh, uh, you know, a burlesque of the reality. But I think that's definitely a trend with some, maybe not Mark Fisher himself, but some of the Mark Fisher acolytes, uh, you know, not to be confused with our own acolytes, but, uh, <laughs> you know, like, uh, so, uh, some, uh, you know, some of them would be like, Oh, well, you know, their image of like the good worker is someone who's like, well, you know, he's white. He and he hates like you know any like he's a Republican basically. He's yeah, like a, hates you know, immigrants. Uh, doesn't, yeah, and we basically yeah, support yeah. trans lives. Uh, and like, he's like he, this yeah. uh, totem that I can invoke, you know, or this uh, talisman that I can uh, use to like you know uh, ward myself against like having to care about like anything except for like my own like weird reactionary beliefs, uh, like or so, you know. It's yeah, just, like, yeah, like, exactly. And, you know, but. Uh, you know, yeah, and it's just like, okay, well, yeah, so Greta's annoying, like, you know, she's, like, a neoliberal, like, plot, like, does that mean mm-hmm. that, like, now we are not gonna care about climate change? Are we gonna listen to Catherine Austin Fitz, like, you know, that it's all an off? Like, <laughs> well, exactly. That's true. Like, then you, you know, don't, you sit back and uh, don't have to do anything. Know, we're just gonna, um, like, blithely, like, disengage, yeah, exactly, just not do anything, like, uh, alright, like, so, I mean, yeah, but, uh, like, um, I, yeah, I think that there's, there's, uh, there's different d- dimensions to it, but I, I don't know. I think that, like, on one hand, like, it, I would say almost, like, there's a difference between, like, being concerned about the Twitter storms or whatever <laughs> and, like, you know, uh, noticing how and observing how, like... And I really do think that, like, for the most part, you know, there are people who have, like, their sort of interests invested in that stuff. Like, you know, the people who are like, oh, you know, Watchmen came out. 
uh, racism is solved or whatever. Like those people were, <laughs> were ne- never serious. You know, the people yeah. who actually are serious, like aren't satisfied by that, you know? Yeah. Like, so like, uh, and, uh, like by the same time, I feel like, you know, uh, at a certain point like you just need to like that's it, it is annoying that there are people who are like that who like you know uh try to sedate or anesthetize people with like these sort of fake gestures yeah but like there's still people who aren't and to you know just to say like you know oh well uh you know i i, I think that there's a distinction between that and also like you know the people who are being mean to you on twitter because like you said class or whatever and they thought that that was being racist in some way i mean maybe it was because you were uh ranting and raving about nietzsche uh <laughs> like that they said that but uh you know i don't know but yeah anyway, like, well at the um, time he was defending russell brand like, in a way that like i can't even remember like what the the dynamics were back oh, in 2013 where russell or something uh, yeah know, it's like russell but, brand you know, is like whatever. you know he was like, like saying he was a communist but like uh he you know had problematic things with women and you know mark fisher was saying it's because he's working class and they're trying to like shut him down and it's like okay yeah i mean there's i think there's probably there's probably something yeah, to that but like thing where it's like oh you know working class people hate women you know you just have to deal with you know like it's like okay like, yeah like, yeah you know uh and I, you know i like i'm not saying that there's no situation where like you know people's sort of sensibilities about like you know that type of stuff can get in the way of like communicating with people across class or cultural divides like that's obviously true but yeah. it's just kind of like you know in a way like log off almost you know like if you're not gonna organize on twitter like so uh, exactly exactly Uh, um yeah yeah, log off from the vampire's castle yeah Um, log off from the vampire's castle uh all right we can move on okay Uh, we can move on Um, uh, ambivalent assessment you know i'm not like i think that you know there's there's good stuff in there and you know i'm sure like i'm not super up on his work so i am i'm sure there's like a lot of stuff of value in it i'm just like being you know like uh uh that's the tag i took that was my impression so there you go there you have it yeah okay uh, um uh, anyway okay um anyway so we can move on yeah yeah no i think i'll I'll probably maybe read a little more fisher just so i have like a better specific handle on it i'm curious about like how i'm intrigued by the weird and the eerie and i'm intrigued by capitalist realism as well i'm just intrigued Uh, by like his outsized like influence in a certain sphere of like kind of media of like independent media like podcasting and like sort of like twitter and uh and how his work has been almost more than anybody else like in the last uh i'd say five years is like constantly being referenced and invoked and all these things and i think mm-hmm. like there's a reason for it yeah, in like a positive books, sense because you know? he yeah zero books yeah. like what i think he he was published under for a while and uh they're all still in kind of like a mark fisher frame uh in terms of like how they're looking at the world and i think there's like certain benefits to that but i think there's also certain like shortcomings that uh or maybe like you know uh areas that are worth critiquing in it that have led to maybe like a little bit too of like a reductive like i really do think like the kind of saying like id poll or like anti-id poll is like too reductive and like one-dimensional um and i think it doesn't actually get at the problem they're trying to like try to try to transcend of like how do we like kind of reconcile the kind of class-based analysis and then kind of a lot of this like intersectionality stuff because like a good class analysis if you're really gonna like try to go in a full like marxist sense like should be kind of intersectional because it's supposed to take everything into account and 
there's a lot of you know theory that's been done over like the 20th century that kind of tried to like advance that so there is room for you know i think to do it in an authentic way i don't think like and i think you know people being called class reductionists is also like an off like a little bit overused uh slur i guess uh you know sometimes like thrown around on twitter but like i i think some people are almost like falling into the vampire castle trap of like embracing class reductionism because they think everything else is like id poll but like i think you're yeah. you're gonna end up in a cul-de-sac if you do that because you do need to like well, engage yeah. with these like more sophisticated conceptions of like all these different identitarian categories and like the ideal thing would be kind of like to bring them together into some kind of like functional political uh corpus of some kind that can like work together while like tolerating and acknowledging uh one another's differences and you know but also be united around a common cause you don't want people just to be balkanized into identity groups obviously that's that's not a successful like strategy uh you know for like mass politics and and so but you have to be this is like a kind of complex issue to kind of uh and you know there's even like stuff that you know like even those people kind of don't talk about who are really into fisher and maybe fisher doesn't talk about as much but like you know there's even like the class like binary between like people living in like the imperial core and then people living in like the global south like on a class level that's like you know that's worth paying attention to as well so not everything that you know, uh, even from a class standpoint, like almost everybody in America is like maybe uh, could be perceived as a kind of labor aristocracy compared yes. to like a poor mm-hmm, like a global South country. Yeah. So like there's that aspect of it as well. That well, there's still with. in the psychological torture devices created by Christianity. Ah, uh, yes, that's uh, it. That's so it. So yeah. they're not worth talking. To. Well, first of all, yeah, yeah if no, you are uh, going to film cross class uh, solidarity and cross ethnic, cultural, whatever solidarity thing with people in Africa or South America, um, you might need to cool it. Well, yeah, on I mean, the dunking on that's yeah the, right yeah no the best way to reach those people is to Nietzsche I think that that's probably the most popular definitely more popular than uh, Christianity or priests um, in uh, yeah in uh, the global south or in, or in Africa for sure uh, yeah yeah uh, you might want to put you might want to uh, take the edgy Gen X dunking on religious Christianity and like put it on the shelf you know and not take it with you uh, um, when you go evangelize uh, yeah you know. I mean I definitely do think <laughs> like, that a lot of this I think that on both ends like you know uh, both sides but, but, but like uh, I think that like a lot of this because I just see like so much of the, the discourse like converging on this like annoying like culture war that like i just feel so fatigued by between like you know the about like the you know the new thing that people say is like the woke stuff you know that's a new word it used to be sjw now that it was in poll now now it's more woke woke, yeah which is really funny because woke like really we saw a huge transformation in the usage of woke from you know uh being uh you know a term that was something that really was appropriated uh by the right you know uh from it's something that like originally started i guess yeah really probably like in like black circles you know, uh, yeah probably like around 2014 like aware, yeah. i i don't want to say for uh, sure yeah, but I'm... actually i was just re-listening to in the grotto you know i was re-listening to some uh someone had mentioned k reno uh, so i just <laughs> uh sometime this week uh re-listened to you know, a little bit of a, my favorite K Reno tracks kind of uh, prompted by that. And, uh, you know, one of his tracks, K Reno, you know, uh, definitely not someone uh, to walk on eggshells or put directness, <laughs> you know, uh, was uh, definitely said, uh, uh, stay woke, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, you know, when I hear what that, year did I that come out? Like James Lindsay and yeah. like stuff. Uh, 
I don't know. I don't remember exactly. I think that it was like 2016, actually. Okay, honestly. so so, so that wouldn't have been the like first that. reference. I, I think it was talking about yeah. I can't uh, say for I sure like that. Uh, I I can't say for sure, but I I think the term was popular. Uh, at least had a big viral come up. Uh, with uh, D. Ray McKesson getting arrested in Ferguson, uh, and he might have had he might have even had a shirt that says "Stay Woke," and like there's a very famous photograph yeah. of him like staring into the camera like a model as he like got arrested. Mm-hmm. And of course, that guy is like an op, like for sure, like an NGO grifter person. And I feel like that he helped like maybe help launch it. I'm sure it was an existent uh, kind of phrase uh, before that, but then I think he it's like he imbued it with a certain kind of meaning and attitude and then it was yeah it was like appropriated like and turned back against like the very thing he was promoting and now it's like pretty much a term of derision i don't know i mean it is what it is but i feel like i do feel the urge to like get beyond this a little bit like try to find a way to get beyond this uh endless like yeah, kind of like post left like uh you know like let's have angela nagel on yeah. to talk about how and it's just very yeah it's, <laughs> it's annoying how like that is like under the surface of everything like always converging like you know someone appears to be talking about something else with like their theoretical concept of like again it's from 2013 so you know but like someone appears to be talking about like their you know theoretical concept of the vampire castle but really they're complaining about how like you know people on twitter are too woke you know like Uh it's just like and like i feel like there's a lot of situations like that where someone appears to be talking about one thing like you know something like sophisticated in some way but then it's just the same old crap about the stupid culture war issue where it's like you know uh is it okay to be white you know like what do you say it's okay to be white you know like say it it's like okay yeah like, yeah come on. no like, exactly uh, exactly you know. and i think this is around the time uh, that it was like starting with like uh like suey park and like um lauren chief yeah, elk right. and all those people mm-hmm. they really who were all like probably like kind of uh, lauren chief elk was like a an op she was a cop um crypto cuttlefish exposed yeah. it I mean, um, Park, she became like a gamer gator eventually yes. right she like actually had her own anti-woke conversion moment where oh wait she, suey park uh, did you know i think so i don't yeah. think suey and park then, did no yeah, she deleted I, her account after trying to cancel colbert that was her thing no she came back she really came, i, I okay. just remember her coming out as being like you know uh concerned about like social justice ideology and like i really? remember like some person saying like now that you've realized the evils of uh sjwism can we confess our uh, our thirst for you you know Ooh, uh, okay okay wow um, um all right yeah i i mean that doesn't surprise me that they would like flip sides necessarily um, um it just feels it feels very oppish but maybe you know uh maybe mark fisher got kind of like caught in the op of like and and he was really you know it kind of like it, it assumed central importance in his mind because all of a sudden there was all this uh this this yeah kind but of woke also stuff like, happening you know, the on Colbert Twitter. report especially by that point the Colbert report like was not funny and annoying and probably even true. more of an op than any of those people were so yeah like, true, again, it's true. Like the whole thing where it's like it's a Jimmy Dore AOC situation where yeah. it's like I don't really care like you know uh cancel like, them all um, cancel everyone um yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> like i agree like i kind of do think it should be canceled i mean again i guess what happened afterwards was worse like uh you know where he just like cries every night about like trump <laughs> it's, it's, uh you know but, wearing like, a sweater in front of like a fireplace uh, yeah. yeah uh yeah very weird <laughs> yeah. um yeah um, uh, right okay i think uh um, that i think we could okay, probably yeah, wrap can, up there on. That's, um, again, like we're just doing the same thing of getting into this but i'm just saying like you know this stuff is like a little bit like chill i mean whatever but yeah 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 
Um, okay, so uh, we're we're at a interesting figure, interesting piece. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Uh, we're at three hours and forty six minutes right now. Um, and we're halfway through. Yeah, we're halfway through. I was thinking, Uh, uh, like, uh, would you be around tomorrow, maybe, uh, to do like a a shorter sesh to like uh, finish these questions, maybe? I think I was. I think this will be split into it. I think this might be our first two part Q and A. Um, yeah, this might have to be. It might, by necessity, be our first two-part Q and A. Yeah. Um, yeah, that might have to go down. I assumed that only a couple of days would be enough, but I was so wrong. I would love to stay here for many weeks, um, and I think a huge part of the greatness to this trip are the three guys and I love the driver. Um, without you guys, this trip wouldn't have been the same. So, Kamsa Hanida, Sarangha Chingu, We have just a small gift for the three of you. Um, so, thank you again. And would anyone else like to say a few words? Little I will explain about the opportunity to tell through the big panorama. 